7 o'clock, I call to order the April 25th Franklin School Committee meeting. Meetings are recorded by Franklin TV and shown on Comcast Channel 11 and Verizon Channel 29, as well as recorded by Franklin Matters. Any individual who also wishes to record this meeting must notify the chair in accordance with Massachusetts General Law, Chapter 38, Section 20F. At the conclusion of our meeting, we will be adjourning to executive session and will not be returning to open <coughs> meeting. Um, right. First on the agenda, we have our pledged student this evening. Um, Nishita, you wanted to go up? Okay. Nishita is an exemplary seventh grade student at Remington Middle School. She is a member of our ADL World of Difference Peer Leadership Program. She set out to become a peer leader in order to ensure that people are nice to everyone and treat all with respect. She's attended the ADL conference in Boston as a representative for Remington and is eager to share her experiences with the RMS community. Besides being a part of peer leaders, she is a member of the choir, enjoys coding, participates in STEM competitions, and competes in track, in track and running. She is an artist and loves to travel. Remington is very proud of Yoshida. If you wouldn't mind leading us in the Pledge of Allegiance this evening. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, Thank you so much for coming out tonight, and thank you to your family. And like we talked about, you can take off. And then she's already like, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I promised ice cream. I'm out. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Have a great night. <laughs> Next, as is customary, we will pause for a moment of silence. Routine business, review of agenda. Agenda looks okay to everyone. Okay. Payment of bills, Mr. McNeil. Bills are in order. Okay. Payroll, all set. Next, FHS student apps. Hello there. Awesome. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Alan Shetty. I am class president of the junior class at Franklin High School. Uh, I just have to give some quick updates about what's going on as we enter quarter four, which feels so weird to say. <laughs> um, so this Wednesday um, at 7 p.m. in the Franklin High School Auditorium, Franklin High School is hosting the Critical Conversation Student Wellbeing Event. Uh, here people can engage with keynote Nicole Claremont and panel of community members as they offer various perspectives on managing stressors. So anyone interested in that can go and visit that. Um, next up, on Thursday, uh, Science NHS is hosting Family Science Night. This is going to be starting at 5.30, and the target audience of this is elementary school students. Um, I am a part of Science NHS, and I've been working on a project of creating a dunk tank with my friends, and we're going to be uh, describing the physics behind that. But I know my friends are in like chemistry, one of my friends is in astronomy, so um, it's going to be a great event. Um, all are welcome. And we've been working on it all year. Everyone's putting in hard work, so um, I really suggest that people should attend. Uh, Best Buddies is hosting prom on April 28th from 5 to 8 p.m., and that's going to be at the Franklin Alps. The music department just got back from their five-day trip to Disney World. Um, I was also on that trip, and I can say that everyone had a blast. Um, you know, it's been great to 
uh, I did traveling and it really felt good to go with the music community and um, it was a really great trip. Uh, up next on this Saturday, Franklin High School is hosting the Junior Districts Musical Festival. Um, so every year the Junior Districts have auditions for chorus, band, and orchestra. And students from grades six through nine audition for this and then they put a performance together. And this year Franklin High School is hosting that event at, um, on Saturday. So anyone interested in attending that can do that. Uh, in sports, congratulations to senior pitcher Alfred Mucciaroni for being named a Hawkmoth Player of the Week. And congratulations to junior um, Sean O'Leary from the Boys Varsity Basketball Team for being named a Hawkmoth Player of the Year. Uh, the junior class has to say that prom is upcoming. Um, it's actually not this Friday, but the Friday after that. Uh, it's at Lombardo's in Randolph, Massachusetts. Um, just want to push out a reminder to make sure all students have completed the student contract so required. And also to fill out the food and allergy form that's posted on Google Classroom along with their seating arrangements so we can have that all settled for uh, the night of prom. Seniors are having graduation on June 2nd, and following that will be uh, all night party. And yeah, that's all updates we have. If you need any volunteers for the duck team, I would like to volunteer superintendent here. <laughs> yeah, well right now we're just talking a little stuffed animal, but uh, if, if you can well, one of those tiny buckets, I'd be glad to dunk I was going to say, I appreciate that you're adhering to our policy around no dunk tanks, but the stuffed animal fits within the purview of yeah, the yeah. policy, so I think we're okay. Awesome. Yeah. Any questions, comments from you? Uh, just a comment. Um, once again, I always look forward to the science night. My boys do as well, so I'm glad that this is back. Um, looking forward to all the great events that are out there. And, um, do you know if there's going to be the uh, the rocket outside in the field? I assume so. I think there's got to be some pro uh, group that's working on that project. Gotcha. Awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Thank you so very much. <laughs> You do a, you have a lot on your plate. <laughs> what, what do you not do? <laughs> He's involved in everything. Um, Superintendent's report, Mr. Jadir. All right. Uh, welcome back, everyone. I hope that you had a restful break. Uh, here we are back in session. As uh, Han mentioned, we are in the fourth quarter of school, so it's hard to believe we're at this stage. Um, just to piggyback on what he mentioned around the trips, the EF tour. A trip that took place to go to Spain and their language immersion program had a positive experience and they arrived home safely, as did our music, friend, uh, music program students, as he mentioned. And uh, they also performed while they were at Disney, so it's just important to point that out as well. But you can expect to hear more about these experiences in the future, either through our student reps or from folks who've actually attended these trips. And on behalf of the students at FHS, and the staff, the staff and chaperones, we just want to collectively thank you as a school committee for approving these types of enriching experiences for our kids to be able to travel and participate in the experiences that they do. And uh, we received a lot of positive feedback. Uh, Mr. Hanna shared some positives from uh, emails from families who had children that attended some of these different experiences, just saying how thankful they were and how well run they were and how they felt um, they felt really confident and safe for their children in these experiences. So we hope to see that continue. I think the planning and the work and the seriousness in which we take this type of these types of experiences, as you've seen through some of the presentations, 
you know, you want to um, create an opportunity for you to want to approve them because they're organized and they're well run and there's a level of safety that's built in. So thank you. You heard about Family Science Night. I will just reiterate the date and time. It's on Thursday, the 27th from 5.30 to 8. May 3rd is the National Walk, Bike, and Roll to School Day. So elementary school students are participating in the National Bike and Roll to School Day on May 3rd. One of our seniors is working on collaborating with the principal and the PE teacher to organize this event in her senior project. This day is intended uh, to celebrate the joy of active commuting while building a sense of community and school spirit. And families can expect to receive more information from their building principals with the information about the day and the logistics. May 5th is a PD day. It's a half day for students and educators across the district will be working on curriculum related and building based initiatives occurring in the district. And um, finally, I wanted to mention that the Office of Teaching and Learning um, has continued throughout the year to continue to apply for grant opportunities. Whenever we see one that fits our need or is able to support the programs in which we offer, we continue to uh, apply and we're happy to announce that we've received four grants. Um, in the humanities content area, Franklin was awarded two grants, the Genocide Education Grant for $31,320, the uh, Accelerated Literacy Learning through High Quality Instructional Materials, which was a $200,000 grant, and both grants will, be, will support the funding of those curriculum materials and professional development related to literacy, and we want to thank Dr. Tim Frazier for his work on securing these grants. In the STEM content area, we're being awarded two ST math grants, one for Jefferson Elementary School and the other for Kennedy. Both grants support funding the digital component of our tier one curriculum and the professional development for teachers. And we want to thank our principals, assistant principals, math specialists at Jefferson and Kennedy schools and Dr. Tina Rogers for their work on securing these grants. This concludes my report today, um, but I want to provide you with a variety of topics that are uh, kind of happening among the district. Okay. Go there, Camille. No questions. <clears throat> uh, just have uh, two. One of them. So I understand over at uh, Horace Mann, uh, there's the AP. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, kind of what's the process right now? Kind of where do we stand in terms of filling that position? Right? So um, we had a resignation um, of our AP position at Horace Mann. That was communicated out with that community. Um, like your, your parent there. Yes. Yeah. Um, so we communicated out with families and with staff. We're in the process of posting the position for the short term and the long term. So looking for someone to serve in an interim capacity for the remainder of the year. And then also having a search that will exist for, just like we would for any type of administrative role that we're trying to fill for the following school year. And that will take place and we'll um, provide more information to the families. Typically when we um, conduct these types of searches, we try to do what we've done and many of you have experienced in the past. We have a collaborative process for which we hire and try to vet folks and um, allow uh, candidates or a candidate to get in front of um, different groups, um, which could include our teachers, our families, students, um, staff, depending on the role, and certainly we'll look to continue that process for that position as well. In the meantime, we have Dr. Frazier, um, who is a former middle, middle school assistant principal, um, who has been um, over at Horace Mann helping um, to, um, helping the administrative and, and the leadership team over there in the meantime, while we look to continue to um, find someone for the remainder of the year. Thank you. You're welcome. And then um, one other thing too, this was, so we had uh, the opportunity to visit some of the, the schools uh, today and do some tours. Um, what can they kind of uh, 
we looked at a lot of the specialized programs, and I know we've talked about the, you know, this both quantitative and qualitative benefits to having so many of the specialized programs in-house. Have we, in terms of like the, the cost-saving measures, have you ever put that down in dollars to say this is how much money is the district is saving by having all of these great programs in-house? So we've we've put some broad numbers together. One exercise we haven't done because of bandwidth, to be quite honest, was looking at if we were to apply a figure to the cost of what it would cost to educate a student outside if they weren't in an industry program. I think that's something that we're interested to continue to look and do. But um, I think in general, I'll let Miriam speak to. Yeah, so I would say generally um, our in-district programs are saving us um, money. We're spending roughly $32,000 annually on average for our in-district programs. Um, roughly eighty-two, I want to say $82,000 on, on average for students in out-of-district placements. Um, so you can see the, the significant difference there. Um, I think as Mr. Giorgio said, I think there's some benefit to looking at the current students in our in-district programs and if they were to be placed out, what the value of that would be. Exactly. Yeah, not to kind of add anything more to the plate, but I definitely think as we kind of go through this budget season and, and again next year, which is likely to be even more difficult, just to be able to kind of put it into context to say, you know, specifically, here's exactly your how much money is being saved by being able to kind of have all of these in-house programs. Um, you know, just when questions come up about, you know, how you know how we being creative uh, with the funds, this is definitely one way. And again, not to put it all in dollars and cents, like there's tremendous benefit to being able to have so many of the, the kiddos with their community members. Uh, but I think it also might help in the, the, the budget talks to be able to say, you know, this is approximately how much money we are saving by housing all of these programs and not having to kind of go up this kind of district. Just to be clear, we plan to do that. We just don't, my bandwidth comment was around for you in this moment to do this, but um, it's part of our, uh, our discussions already. It's part of the budget development. That's awesome to get that because it's a question that I think we can answer and I think would demonstrate the ways in which we're able to support students within our district. And we talked about, as you mentioned, the value of that, but also there's a value to that monetarily as well when we can do it. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah. No questions. No questions. We appreciate the updates. Thank you. Same. Yeah. Um, no questions. Thank you for the update. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Moving along, guest presentations. We have Remington Middle School here. Hey. We are joined by Mr. Craig Williams and Mr. Daniel Champagne. Um, Craig is the principal from Hillsborough Assistant Principal at Remington. They are preparing a slide warm up. Projector, I'll just speak to um, you're welcome. We're happy to have you both here to speak to the great things that are happening and hit on some of the highlights um, that are occurring at Remington, and then I'll, I'll kick it to you all to, to kind of ask questions if you have. Well, uh, good evening, everyone. And as uh, Mr. G here just said, uh, my name is Craig Williams, the proud principal of Remington Middle School, and I'm joined by Danielle Champagne, the assistant principal. And uh, we're excited to, to share with you all this evening uh, all, all things Remington. Um, and a quick uh, mural here uh, done by Jane Bichette, our, our, our teacher extraordinaire. 
Um, and as, as you walk into the building, sets a, a real positive tone. Um, so this summer, uh, the leadership team of Remington, uh, we examined the book, uh, The Power of Moments by the Heath Brothers. And uh, the book shares how moments can be utilized to elevate, to provide insight, invoke pride, and connect. And I think over the past few years in education, due to understandable challenges, these moments have unfortunately been few and far between. There haven't been those opportunities to connect as a, as a community. And we wanted to see what we can do to make that happen, to use these moments uh, to be able to elevate the day to day, to be able to provide insight for our students and invoke pride and connect. Um, they, they say in the book, the occasional remarkable moments shouldn't be left to chance. They should be planned for and invested in. And that's really what we as a leadership team asked ourselves is how do we use the power of moments to achieve the lofty goals that we put forward in our SIP? Now, how are we going to use moments to help improve the social emotional well-being of students and staff? How do we use those moments to ensure we have an engaging and rigorous curriculum to provide high quality instruction to meet the needs of each learner and, and provide effective two-way uh, communication to really support student learning. How can we leverage that? So this evening we're going to highlight a few of those areas, the first being our advisory program. Um, and actually I know a few months back uh, I was here along with some others as part of the advisory committee and spoke a little bit more in depth about the advisory program, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time um, talking about our goals, but looking at some of our moments from this year in advisory as we look to make some connections with each other um, in terms of student-to-student -student connections as well as teacher-to-student um, connections. So we'd love to have moments of insight as students are exploring the SEL curriculum through our Second Step program um, as they're looking at things such as self-awareness. We've looked at uh, making connections with each other in terms of how are you feeling today in different slides to, to connect with just checking in with students about their life and how they're doing, um, as well as providing moments that elevate. We also want students to be able to have fun in advisory and just have those moments where they're participating in things such as a paper, paper chain challenge as part of the STEM, uh, STEM week, or right before break we had a school-wide uh, Pictionary tournament, which was a ton of fun for the for the students and um, teachers alike. So providing those moments across our advisory program on a daily basis, as well as although not part of um, advisory directly, what we have created is a student advisory board, and we have utilized our advisory groupings for that um, for that board. And what each advisory has done is selected a representative from their advisory. Um, and then each cycle, those representatives by grade level meet with Mr. Williams and myself. Um, and it's a time where we are able to provide students with a voice and gain some insight from the student perspective as to what's going on in, at Remington Middle School and provide them with opportunities to share those things with us. Some of the tasks up there that you may see um, us doing in, a, in the student advisory board meeting is early in the year we wanted to sort of check in with students, what's going well at Remington, and what are some areas that we can improve in. Um, and then we've also had them help us provide some feedback on different um, things throughout the year as a, in terms of like a poster contest that we had, as well as planning for some school-wide um, school events. And then the goal, too, would be that those students then can go back to their advisory to update them on what we've talked about, as well as get some additional feedback from them to bring back to us as a group. Next area in terms of supporting student behavior, 
So as we um, examined how we support student behavior across the school, we wanted to create processes um, not only to hold students accountable for um, what we're calling our big roles there that you see, um, but also to acknowledge when students are doing what they should be doing and are living the core values of our school and adhering to those big roles. Um, so we've created this uh, on the left there called the Remy card, which is available to all staff where they have these cards um, and can hand them out to students at any time, acknowledging one of our core values that they have um, seen them exhibit and students can then put them in a grade level bin where we do a raffle at the end of each month. And I think through this, we've really seen some moments of pride for students and moments where they're feeling elevated. Um, they actually are very excited at times to get them. We've had kids ask if they can take pictures of, you know, pictures of it to show home before they put it in the bin. I've had a student ask me to make a photocopy of it so they can bring it home and put it on the fridge. So it's really a, a nice opportunity to provide that uh, for students. We also have to recognize, too, that there are times when students aren't meeting those expectations. Um, and so we, this year, have continued to, to, to develop our after-school behavior support program, um, which replaces that traditional idea of detention, um, but does require students to be after school. Um, they are working with one of one two teachers who run our program. Um, and during that time, we're looking for students to have moments of reflection and to process um, why they are there. Um, it does form connections with those teachers, and we've seen those teachers checking in with students throughout the day um, over the course of the year as well. Um, but an opportunity to provide, to have the students provide staff with insight in terms of what motivated them in terms of their behavior, but also what can the staff members do? What can their teachers do? What can we as administrators do to help support them um, going forward? And I think the final piece to that too is also looking at providing moments for them to repair the connection with those that whether it's a staff member or another student um, with the facility itself, if it's in terms of like, some damage to the building, to repair that harm being done and provide those moments for students as well. Um, also, a, a significant um, aspect is, is, making, is maintaining a positive staff culture. And also, as we're having our staff develop and grow in so many different skill sets this year, um, providing them with those opportunities and those moments. Um, so a few things that we've done uh, along the way, we did uh, something called Holiday Hype uh, right before the holiday break in which staff uh, had an opportunity. They were paired with a different staff member um, and their job was to anonymous, anonymously hype uh, that staff member. And so we saw just incredible things. We had um, we have a very talented uh, counselor who's a, a great musician, so she uh, wrote a song uh, for uh, uh, or performed a song for um, one of our teachers. There were acrostic poems that were uh, done and, and we utilized the students as well in the process. Um, and so it was a great opportunity, a great moment for staff to, to elevate themselves right before that stretch run uh, to the holiday break and also modeled for students uh, as they got into the act of showing appreciation and respect for each other. Um, when we have, when we build those moments where staff really feel a part of the culture, a part of the community, uh, that helps um, when we do have to say, okay, now it's time to learn. Now we need to refocus our, we need to focus ourselves on, on, the, on the work that needs to be done. Um, and so that helps us look at, uh, you know, opportunities to define our purpose of multi-tiered system of supports, uh, going through professional development together with uh, universal design for learning. Um, in which uh, you know, we wanted to provide the options for, for staff in a very universally designed way of where are they in their understanding 
of this? Do they need a, a big picture understanding or do they feel like they're ready to dig a little deeper um, in providing our staff with that opportunity as we tackle uh, that important concept um, and to help? Uh, we also are looking for ways in which we want to um, we want to support and build um, connections with our new teachers. And uh, this year we've revamped our new teacher academy um, and provided opportunity where we have uh, teachers in their first and second year uh, with an opportunity to um, learn about various different topics, including student engagement, um, and DEI. Uh, and, and having those opportunities to really um, learn together uh, and, and feel that level of connection and support. Um, in that, we are, in both of these processes, we're able to utilize and leverage our um, Joe Barca and Abby Evans, our curriculum uh, leaders, uh, the new positions this year, um, in which they were really able to take a leadership role in the new teacher academy, um, facilitating a few of the meetings as well as um, they, when we go through the process of learning about universal design for learning, um, the expectation is that staff is inviting them into the classroom and having them give, the fee give feedback or help them facilitate the lesson. Um, and that's really helped them um, become part of that community. Um, also, you know, moving through with those opportunities for, for learning and insight um, with our DEI connecting tips, uh, that we provide during in our memos. Um, it gives staff an opportunity at their pace to, if they want to look at the definition, look at an infographic, um, and that's what they're ready for, that's, that's the exposure. But we also provide opportunities for you know 10 minute videos, 15 minute reads, um, that staff can dig a little bit deeper um, into some of these topics. We also, uh, like I said, there were, uh, you know, over the past few years, those community events, and you know, we're, we're hearing uh, student reps from the high school, we're hearing Mr. Jagir talk about all these different exciting student events that have come back, and, and we hit that similar tone with at, at Remington um, of what we're seeing and what we're um, really trying to to make moments for our students with these whole, whole school events and whole community events. Uh, we've had multiple spirit weeks. Um, again, providing that elevation. Okay, Monday, all right, I can do Monday. I'm, I'm gonna wear my PJs. Um, that makes it a little easier. Um, but also have opportunities for you know things like a tropical or a beach day when it's just you know it's almost spring and you really want to wear that warm those warm clothes and that just helps on that on that windy cold day. Um, just thinking about that. Uh, also opportunities for um, our unified basketball program. We had uh, last year was our first year, um, and this and this year we continue to develop that momentum. Um, and actually, for the first time, played against other schools, uh, which was, again was that really powerful moment uh, when we had you know you saw our student section um, who were just incredible, incredibly positive for all the athletes um, who were performing on that day. Um, we also uh, were able to have an in-person uh, visiting author, which was a great experience uh, to be able to do that as a community. A great moment to, for the whole school to physically be able to see each other and be part of that. Um, and um, we're very excited for uh, coming up in May 5th. Uh, Remington will be have will, um, during the half day. We will be uh, holding a mental health awareness day uh, in which students will be attending a variety of different workshops um, based off of interest. Um, there'll be physical well-being, mindfulness, um, as well as different educational tips and strategies. Um, so we're really excited for that as that's coming along uh, to provide that opportunity. 
Um, and finally, our, our, our most recent uh, event uh, was something that we called the, the Run Dog Rally, uh, and it was an opportunity for us as a whole school community to come together to acknowledge the work that we did uh, in a March food drive, um, in which during the month of March, we donated over 800 items uh, for the Franklin Food Pantry. Um, and part of that was, um, part of the, the, comp the friendly competition was the team that brought in the most uh, donations, um, had, a, had a couple of opportunities. Uh, one, they, they were able to be dismissed first, which they are very excited about. Uh, and um, also, they had the um, selected students uh, to pie the, the principals in, in the face. Um, and so that led to a lot of, lot of interest, but we also had wanted to figure out a way in which we could, um, uh, you know, not only have it being about pie and the principles. And so at the, at the Ren Dog Rally, we, uh, we had opportunities. Our jazz band performed, the students entered, as well as during different intermissions. Um, we had a, to go along with the Pictionary Tournament, that occurred with the students. Our staff participated in the Pictionary Tournament uh, in front of 350 screaming fans. Um, and we also had the opportunity for a member of the Franklin Food Pantry, the Vice President, uh, Rachel Flump, uh, came and spoke uh, to the group and, and acknowledged uh, what we did and what we can do next. And so we had multiple opportunities for that. So again, a really uh, great opportunity to come together, a great moment for us as a community. And as we transition into the classroom, we recognize that there's fantastic moments that happen every day um, in the classrooms in our building, but wanted to highlight um, one of our focus areas in terms of curriculum this year, which was the transition to the open science um, curriculum for our science classrooms. Um, and here you see a variety of ways that students are engaging with the curriculum. Um, it is a phenomenon model that is used, so there's moments where curiosity is peaked, um, where students are asking questions, um, experimenting, gaining insight into um, different concepts, and then ultimately able to make that connection um, between their, from their driving question um, to the concepts they're learning. So we've been seeing a lot of um, curiosity, uh, engagement, perseverance that students are working through as they engage with the science curriculum. And then we were excited this spring to bring back our student-led conferences, um, which we have not had for several years. Um, and it was the first time where all three of our grades participated. So it was the first time our sixth graders had participated in that experience. We had previously done it with um, seventh and eighth grade. Um, but for the students, it was a time to set goals throughout the year, to reflect on their progress, and then select items to showcase their progress um, throughout the year. Um, gave students moments of, of pride in their work and in the progress that they have made over the course of the year. Um, also those moments of elevation where they're able to think about something that they're working towards over the course of the year. And then insight in terms of that self-reflective piece. So here are just some examples of um, different teachers' self-reflections that students completed over the course of preparing for the student-led conferences. And then we hope from the parent perspective, um, it created a moment of pride for them in seeing what their students have, the work that their students have been working on over the course of the year. Um, what they've accomplished, as well as some insight into what their students have been working on throughout the year. And still to come, uh, we have many more moments uh, that we want to close off the year with. We have our mental, as I said, the Mental Health Awareness uh, Day coming up May 5th. Um, uh, our ADL Peer Leader Lessons, in which 7th and 8th graders are going to be teaching um, our 6th graders that it's cool to be kind. 
uh, over over the next few weeks. Um, we have field trips uh, planned, and, and that's a very for our eighth graders heading into the into Boston. Um, so very excited for that, um, and a variety of different uh, end of year events uh, to close off their their middle school year. Um, and so we we. We hope that you see that um, we didn't want these moments this year to come by chance, but that we truly were uh, deliberate and, and invested and, and planful in making them happen for our students and our community. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we'll start with surprise. Camille? <clears throat> Thank you for your presentation. I have a, just a couple questions. The after school program, um, I don't remember the name of it, but it's the after school behavior support. Yeah. Um, is it used only at Remington? Um, I believe so. We were fortunate enough to have two teachers who want to who wanted to um, take on that that role. Um, I do believe they we, that there is a more restorative approach to move away from the traditional detention at the two other middle schools. Because um, I just wonder, like, to whether it's working or whether you know what differences teachers see and how it's mm -hmm. working, or um, and then how is it staffed? Yeah, so we we have two teachers who have a, uh, an interest in in student behavior, and so they it's a stipended position. Um, that they take on. Um, and then my last question is the one I've been asking everybody who gives a presentation, like uh, what are some challenges that um, we in the community should know about and that we especially should know about so that we could um, keep it in mind as we work to support you? I think um, one of the big things is looking at students' mental health and our needs and, and the hard work that our counselors, our, our counseling staff and our school psychologists um, are doing. They have you know, their, their regular duties that they have to do in terms of meeting student needs, but we've seen an increase, obviously, over the last years, uh, last few years with um, regarding student needs to see counselors. So I think that, that mental health piece um, is one of our biggest challenges in mm -hmm. rewarding students and with a variety of their needs. Yeah. Can I ask a quick follow-up? Mm -hmm. um, we hear that, and I, uh, we've seen data of the increase. Has has any entity done kind of a tease out whether it is all that kids are more troubled or that they are more educated now to understand, one, that they're allowed, that they have a right to seek help, or that they're made more aware of um, social emotional learning. Does that make sense? Like, mm -hmm. I just want to make sure we're capturing, like, these numbers do concern me, and they, and, and I'm glad we're responding to them, but I also um, want to make sure that we understand that the factors might be um, also contributing to the higher numbers, is that kids have, like, they, they have the language that we used to not have. I just read in the newspaper the other day that it wasn't until 1994 it was considered radical that trauma besides war, that anything was called trauma besides war, that sexual assault or, or that, they, that psychologists didn't think that that was trauma. And there's many things that we would call ACEs or trauma today. So kids have a language and they also have this beautiful sense of 
I deserve for my mental health to be recognized and taken care of. So I, I'm just wondering, not even our district or like nationally, is somebody kind of trying to figure out, are the kid? I know the kids are troubled, I know that they're facing things they've never faced before, but is it also that because we know it, we're recognizing it more? Plopping that big question for you. Who's <laughs> the chair? Yeah. <laughs> I think, sure. I think what, Camille, what I'm hearing um, you talk about too is if students are self-reporting in, in the surveys and the data that's provided, I think that's an interesting lens. Um, when we talk about, ment I know when I've used mental health, I think about not only the self-reporting or the survey data that we have, but I think what I've, what I've heard from principals and assistant principals is around the behaviors that have manifested as a result of what you come to find out through a processing and investigation, a reflective moment after school around what's really going on that caused the student to maybe act in a way that's not meeting expectations. And I think that's what we've seen an increase um, in. I think it's, it's more visible when there's negative behavior attached to it, but there are just as many kids out there who are struggling, who maybe aren't manifesting their behavior in a negative way too. And I think our principals, when I hear you say you're advocating for mental health support, it's about not only trying to help with the students who we know because of some act or something that occurred, but the kids who just walk through the school every day, and you might not know if you really weren't connected, and I think building connection and trying to figure that out is a piece, but you bring up a great point around if students are being self-assessing self their own mental health, are they equipped with a different lens than maybe previous generations? Did the chair? Um, because I think it's not just reacting to these surveys that we have, it's important that embedded in our curriculum is coping strategies, teaching them ways that help prevent future mental health issues or extreme anxiety. And that I just, I cannot say enough that it's important for us to educate the whole child. So um, I'm sorry I got off topic. It's one of the most important ones, I think. Thanks. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I really do, truly do love these presentations, kind of getting to know uh, the schools uh, that much more, but also when you kind of highlight, so it really kind of offers the opportunity for other schools to kind of replicate some of those bright spots. You know, so that holiday hype uh, mm -hmm. is a fantastic idea. Absolutely love it. Um, and uh, one of the actually, I think I might have given a shout out to this before, but the student-led conferences, I had the opportunity to kind of sit as a parent on one of those uh, recently, and they're fantastic. It's great to see that they're back again. It really does provide such like a retrospective look for, for, for the kiddos, and really kind of pushes them a bit more, because they kind of have to defend you know, their assessment, and defend their, their project. It's not just kind of coming home and saying, you know, here's the grade I got. It's, you know, this is all the work that I did. Here's why I think it's, it's good. And, you know, when, when my daughter had it, I, I pushed back a little bit. And, I, you know, I made her defend it a bit more. And I think it provides, uh, it, it just provides such great experience outside of just that one project that they, that they were doing and, and what they were working on. So that's fantastic to see that's back. Uh, and I would love to hopefully that can see that continue. Thank you so much. Really appreciate everything that you guys are doing. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, thank you. As my colleague said, a great presentation. I can't speak today. Great presentation. Um, nice insight to Remington and just kind of what things are going on. Um, things that jumped out at me that I loved hearing was around that student advisory board. Um, so, what were some like of the aha moments that you got out of that that you wouldn't have had if you didn't have that board? 
plays. Yeah. Um, one of those that, that sticks out to, we use, the, we use them a lot, um, more so last year when we were developing the idea of the Remy card and the big rules. Um, but I always remember we were trying to figure out how we roll out the big rules to the students. You know, and like, okay, we've taken the handbook, you know, it's an 80 page document that some people read, um, and want to really condense it into those five or six rules. So like, right, how do we present it? Do we have students come on the announcements and share? And one of the eighth graders was like, look, they're rules. No one's gonna like them. Just, just go with it. Just go. And we're like, okay. So we did it, you know, and, and, and that was a really helpful insight. Well, on the other hand, like the students were like, for the Remy car, we, go, we, gotta, we should make a video. And we make a commercial for it. And, and they did an excellent job. Uh, and uh, give a shout out to Ms. Champagne and, and Luke Diaz, our, a math teacher, who were, were uh, instrumental in creating that video with those students um, in which they brought that idea of the Remy card to life. So yeah, it's, it's been really helpful uh, and insight in there. And I would just add too, I think there's been things that we've couple, whether it's the poster contest or even the assemblies and things like that, where we have the adults thinking of how, you know, how we might present these things and what we might do. And then having that student advisory board sort of put eyes on it and give us some insight into it before we present it to the whole school. They think of some things that we may not have like looked at from, from the student perspectives that we we're able to revise um, before we present it to the whole school body. Gotcha, great. Yeah, I mean, it just adds a, a different level of empowerment and engagement, and then it just adds more ownership for the students to follow through with what's being done. So uh, great, love that you're doing that. And I hope that the other schools kind of do this as well because um, it just takes, it goes another another mile. Um, the other thing that jumped out at me that I saw in the presentation was around the new teachers. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've seen this in any of the other schools. Um, is there a larger percentage of new teachers at, at Redmondton? We, we this year had, um, do have a significant uh, number of new new teachers, some with a wide variety of experience. So we have a few, um, a population of teachers who are changing roles, you know, going from special ed to content area, or changing grade levels, um, and going from elementary to, to middle school, um, or experienced teachers who came from another district, and then also teachers who are brand new. So it was really, um, that was some of the feedback that we received of wanting to be able to support our new teachers and more effectively. Um, so we really tried to set out to, to do that. Um, and you know, through some of our planning, but then also leveraging with uh, Joe Barca and Abby Evans, that was really helpful to use to utilize their their skill set in that department. And it is something that's done at the other two middle schools yeah. as well. Awesome. We're actually having the last uh, our last one, which is May tenth. Uh, all three middle school new staff is going to get together, and we're going to do sort of an end of year celebration, but also like strategies to help end the year strong. Um, and give that uh, feedback and advice. Great, uh, thank you, appreciate the information. Uh, thank you very much for this presentation. Just from, from everything you've shown us uh, here tonight, it's really apparent just how important it is to you for creating a, a positive and healthy and nurturing school culture at Burlington uh, Center. With that, uh, the um, advisory program, really getting that feedback from the students and really trying to meet them where they are in order to provide them the support they need. And same with the new teachers and their development um, and the community events. And uh, we know that you know, when there's a positive and healthy culture in a school or an institution, it's gonna make it um, much more easy and conducive for, um, for better 
better experience in learning for our students. So we really appreciate that. It's definitely apparent that it's a high priority of yours, and you're doing an excellent job with that. So thank you, and please go to good work. Thank you. Um, just uh, thanks for the presentation. Um, I have not read the book, The Power of Moments, and I will put it on my desk because that sounds like it's right up my alley. Is it a quick read? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Or a quick audio <laughs> lesson. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll admit that that would be that. Yeah. 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 Um, so thank you for that. And um, I had a follow-up question about the big goals. So, yeah. so I had written about it. I was looking at the power they created, and then we sort of fleshed out a little bit here in one of your answers. So, so they were created by you guys sort of boiling down the handbook and trying to get like the essential yeah. components. Like, what are the big messages? Yeah, yeah. So we, um, it was, it was a long. It, it probably from about October of last year until April, early May of last year. Um, where we had our staff go through and identify some of the what were the most common things that you know unexpected behaviors that they were seeing and being able to, to work through that um, get that feedback um, then and they were able to they created you know their own within their team five to seven positively stated rules we gathered that all together then presented that out for more feedback. We used our school uh, student advisory board of like, what are we asking students to do? Are they fair and things of that nature? Uh, shared with our school council as well um, to, to get their feedback, their eyes on it. Um, and then right before we rolled them out to students with our staff, we also then went through and did some scenario work of you know provided unexpected behaviors, what rules being broken, how as a staff can we address that in the moment? How can we follow up? And what can, what's that, if they're breaking that rule, what behavior is that communicating? Um, and, or what need is that communicating? So that was, it was a, a long, long process, but I feel like it, it anchors us. Uh, a good sign, I feel like, when you're working with middle schoolers, if they can, if they roll their eyes but cite what the rule is, it, you know that they know it. Um, and so I think uh, that you know that has helped us um, and be able to to be more consistent on that school wide basis. I appreciate it, and I'm glad I asked the follow up question because the way it sounded earlier it was like you know we boiled down what was in the handbook, and it sort of made me think it was just the two of you sitting in a room together. But it sounds like it was the opposite. You're just getting you know feedback and ideas and brainstorms from different people separately, and then pulling together. It sounds like a really long process, but it's important to have all the stakeholder voices. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at the Italian because he loves that word. Mm. Have all the stakeholder voices because you know if we're if we're just sort of to follow arbitrary rules, we're less likely to follow them than if we sort of understand the reason why and sort of um, understand like how that affects the community and the bigger idea. So I really appreciate that. And, and I think um, so much of so much of like having expectations school-wide, that's just such an important piece as far as like building that community, as far as like we all respect each other, we all agree to following these and um, not just to sort of like dissuade bad behavior, but also to encourage the good stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, the REM cards or whatever you call it, REM dot cards, yeah. but um, all of that. It just it sounds sounds great. It sounds like PBIS best practices and um, a lot of like the restorative practices embedded in there. And I just I commend you for your work in this. Um, another thing that I saw on the slides that I don't think you mentioned, but maybe you did if I if I spaced out for a minute, was the DEI connecting tips. Mm -hmm. I definitely saw it up there. Um, and so I just, that's something like we've been working on in the DEI committee, um, sort of 
sort of putting together bite-sized little bits of information. Like, we don't want to overwhelm people. Um, and I really am being selfish using the word we, I should say. Your, your staff, the members on our subcommittee, um, have just worked so hard in sort of like giving, giving you little bits of information as far as various aspects of, you know, neurodiversity was the one you had up there and, you know, other things, you know, what is dyslexia and like a number of different um, examples and you were gracious enough to, to have a little corner for to put those DEI connecting tips in your, is that a staff newsletter? Yeah, it's our weekly memo. Yeah, and I think that that's just, it's, um, it's something that I think like like seems maybe small and physically maybe is small, but the ideas are really big. And these are things that you can sort of look at at a glance. And then if you want to, you can click to like get one layer deep layer deeper. And if you want to, you can click to get a couple layers deeper. And so it's like basically it's like to meet people where they're at. If they mm -hmm. want to dive in and learn more, right? The second rate. If they don't, no big deal. There's other stuff in the newsletter that's important too. And so um, I I'm just so glad that you're able to that there and you know we don't need like a six hour PD to talk about one of these things it's just sort of like little bits of information over time and then um, staff can know you know who to, who to ask if they need clarification or if they need help with something or um, have questions and I just really appreciate that piece too. Yeah, thank, you. Yeah, thank you for their presentation and I uh, just wanted to say that my daughter Genevieve she really flourished uh, while she was in there at uh, Remington to share with you in the community. Ultimately, just to set expectations for today, the purpose is to share the information outlined in the report, and then also to allow time for questions and processing. And ultimately, um, the plan is to have a vote on the 9th of May, which would take place then. And ultimately, uh, today, what we'll do is we'll walk through the redistricting analysis report just to provide as much information as possible. What I'm going to do is you'll notice that we'll have the report up but we'll also move to, um, we have, we're joined here by uh, the chair of the Spacing Subcommittee, which is Al Charles, and Priya Sankalia, who is um, the project manager for Applied Geographics, which we will reference, and then I'll allow Priya some opportunities to share with you all just the process uh, that we went through, uh, in certain, excuse me, in certain pieces, and then also just the details around the recommendation, or the report for the options. So basically, I'm not going to read this um, word for word, but wanted to just provide some context for everybody so that we are all at the same page. I know many of you attended different um, either community input sessions or you served on the space and the subcommittee, and we can kind of work through and talk through um, those pieces, but just to kind of set the stage. So uh, basically, as we look at the, the report, I'll use this as a guiding document. But ultimately, I just wanted to call out as the first thing, um, whenever a district goes through any type of redistricting analysis, um, it comes with uh, an adaptive 
change and also has to do with the technical change. And I think the technical change to any problem is a much easier one to solve. When you look at a math problem where you're trying to figure out numbers or look at um, uh, zones of a district or distance to a school, those are um, easily solved in some way. You can create a metric, you can create a distinction in some way, and it's much easier to say, this is where you belong. The adaptive piece of it is where a community has to recognize the challenges, the um, previous decisions, the dynamics of a town, all of those things come into play when you're thinking about change, because ultimately when you say redistricting, you're talking about any type of change. So I just like wanted to call that out. It's listed in the summary, and it talks a little bit about that. Um, but ultimately, the, just make sure I don't miss the piece here. Just to move forward on this, you know, we looked at, as, a, as the redistricting analysis, the charge was to look at the, the demographic changes, the student population capacity, um, existing school buildings as part of the analysis. We then, um, you'll notice here in the report, it talks a little bit about providing an overview. One of the pieces that I would just call your attention to here is that the redistricting um, typically is prompted at a time when either you're building a new school, taking a school offline. We were in a unique position where we had closed the school and we, are, we wanted to look now and, and do an analysis based on the closure of Davis Thayer, based on our current enrollment, looking at how space has evolved over time, um, the fact that we haven't really done any type of redistricting effort since 2002, and ultimately um, looking at a, a report that was generated during the closure from um, Kessel Booz and Associates that had some recommendations in there around this analysis, so it prompted the decision to move forward um, and, and look at this. As we continue on, there was a timeline. You may recall there was a space needs facilities assessment subcommittee that was formed last school year. Um, and through that, there was a, a look at schools and there was a recommendation that was arrived on, on June 14th to continue to analyze this work. Through the summer, once that was decided and, and approved to move forward, we then moved to procure uh, an analysis, a redistricting analysis a professional consultant to help with that work and help us lead, help lead that work. That's where Priya came into play with her team and, and we were able to secure them. Then we knew that we needed some sort of advisory committee um, to help serve as a resource, a touch point, a perspective, and we were able to put together uh, an advisory committee that met through the year up through until February. Um, and here we are. We then had some input sessions and went through the timeline and presented information, and then ultimately um, arrived at having the Space Needs Subcommittee sift through this work. And, and there is a recommendation in front of you, but this report provides all the information in totality for you to consider and weigh as you um, think about this decision. This is our current map, just to anchor the conversation. Basically, uh, each of those areas is the middle schools, if you want to think of it that way, like the Annie Sullivan Middle School, the um, Remington Middle School, and then thinking about where is Horace Mann Middle School. So those um, areas indicate that. So ultimately, we put that committee together. I referenced it earlier. It, did, it included 50 members. You may recall um, approving 
the, the formation of a committee and then the members that would serve on it. The members included, they were representative of our uh, community, they were families, there were administrators from each of our buildings, uh, staff members, uh, we had a community member on there, and uh, ultimately everyone was a community member on that team as well. So we kicked it off with the redistrict analysis. Um, in the report, there were links to the presentations for each of those meetings. And uh, one of the first things that we did was we worked with AppGeo to, uh, they had recommended getting some guiding principles, just some foundational pieces to consider as you analyze this work, to have something to kind of keep the conversation grounded in some of the areas. They're not meant as a, a hard, fast uh, metric, but ultimately areas of consideration. And uh, you know, through this process, I would say it, we developed, we had some examples and models, presented it, had some reactions and good feedback from our redistricting advisory committee, from the table groups to kind of put together what seemed, this was synthesized basically around it. So geographic proximity, having schools where kids attend that are near where they live to the greatest extent possible, looking at making sure that we have uh, instructional capacity in the buildings, trying to balance enrollment, considering specialized programs in our, our schools, minimizing impacts to family. Once again, that context to Franklin has to do with minimizing impact. There were conversations around the Davis-Thayer uh, closure. And then fiscal, fiscally responsible. Like, are, is this fiscally responsible to, to manage? Just moving forward, you can see some of the ways in which uh, things were communicated. There, uh, the letters are linked here, PDFs, but ultimately, uh, below that in the bullets, you'll notice we put uh, each of the meetings was recorded by Zoom um, or presented by Zoom. We had a story map that many of you have seen in, in some one of the communications. There was an email address created, a group email that folks have uh, utilized, and we also included other individual um, members of the committee had received emails along the way as well. And there were three options that were part of the redistricting advisory uh, committee that came out of the committee that were presented as part of the community input sessions. So um, I'm gonna kick this to Priya at this point, just to provide a high-level uh, high overview of what those three options were, and then we'll get into the survey data, what the information showed, and then move forward with the presentation. So Priya, I can pull up the story map if you'd like, or do you wanna talk, speak, yeah, the story map would be great. great. And then we can just jump to option one, which is, if you look at the top, there's that. Oh, yeah. Um, so um, just to sort of add to what um, Dr. Shuri says, that we looked at a lot of different options and you know uh, scenarios. We built these scenarios with a smaller working group, and we shared it with the large advisory group. And um, we came up with these three options which seemed like uh, viable to put in, fro in front of you. Um, and given the circumstances with where the school district is, the first one was just to keep the districts as they are, because it was clearly obvious that you know the, the district needed to do this whole um, uh, you know, space needs and a master planning exercise. So while that's happening, the idea was, okay, let's not do anything, and that's one option, so you just don't do anything. So let's move to the next one. Okay. So all the districts stay the same, and of course, that process will go on. The option one lays out on this map, so you can see if nothing changes, then what happens as far as your enrollment is concerned, all the breakdown of the numbers, 
And you'll see that, of course, there are um, imbalances, and that's what we were trying to uh, you know, work towards uh, improving. So you'll see that you know, in the, um, the utilization that Keller is definitely higher currently, and even if you look at the projections, it's higher. Um, and you know, that was sort of, I think, sort of expected to some extent because of the, the closing of the school. And so option two, as a result, was a one of the best options that we had of an actual redistricting scenario. So this is what we actually put a bunch of different scenarios together, and this was one that came out to be the on the top. Um, and if you look at it in detail, um, you know the the map itself was divided up into these different um, sections or components, as we call them. And those were made, um, you know, with input from from the yes. different committees and groups and and, and the community, and uh, they followed logical boundaries. Like, you know, it could be a street, it could be a neighborhood, um, it could be some other geographic uh, boundary. And if you look, almost all the the elementary schools have a little bit of movement, so that we could make them more uh, geographically contiguous. You could make the enrollment a little more balanced. So you'll see that you know there are um, components from you know now what's Keller moving to Oak. There are some components from um, Keller moving to Kennedy. So sort of you know helping balance out the numbers a little bit, and that led to uh, an improved improvement in the um, utilization essentially. And despite that, if you look at the projections, it's still a little you know on the higher end, and there's an imbalance in the middle school. So. You know, despite the fact that this was the best option, it still is you know lacking in some ways. Um, and then what we decided was, okay, let's provide a third option. And the third option, uh, what it does is that it gives you. Um, oh, I just want to make another point about the second option. Sorry. No problem. Um, is that um, the, we gave you we gave numbers of affected students, and you know. For, a, for implementing a redistricting scenario like this, 561 students would actually be affected. Um, so that is a pretty high percentage to you know, achieve that, that uh, balance in enrollment. Um, and so then the third option was um, is that effectively keeping everything the same, but adding these buffer zones, this buffer zone in for um, several components that are um, currently Keller, but they are very, very close to the Oak, um, Oak School. And so um, the idea being that that gives the district a little flexibility in um, controlling the enrollment. While it is not needed, because you know there is potential for using the spaces in Keller and, um, um, and um, uh, Anne Sullivan effectively, uh, this kind of gives you a little more flexibility and gives the families that are close to Oak the option if they wanted to opt in to going to Oak, um, you know, essentially giving them that choice. Um, so what what I think the this buffer zone consideration is again a stopgap to, you know, of course, with all the scenarios, doing the master planning exercising exercise, understanding what all the um, capacities of the schools are and what you know the steps are going forward. So that's that's uh, that's that was the whole exercise that we performed. Thank you. Thank you. So just included in the in the buffer zone, one of the pieces that we discussed through the redistricting advisory committee shared with folks during input sessions 
and then discussed again at the Space Needs Committee was around any option with buffer zones. There was some, some pretty good conversations around how that could look. Um, one of the things that we, we were clear about in the presentations in the forums for families were if you, uh, in a scenario where you had an option and you, you requested, you would be responsible to transport your own child because what this means is if in option three, if the school zones stayed the way they are, and we continue to master a plan for our district. We have a bus in a route, and you're assigned to a school, and we're legally provided to, uh, obligated to provide you with transportation. In a buffer zone, you're basically, in essence, requesting to go to a school that's not assigned to you per the school committee area, attendance areas. So in a, in a situation like that, you just would be responsible to transport your child to the school. Otherwise, if you wanted to take the bus, you have a bus available to you to attend the school that you'd be enrolled in. Um, the requests uh, would have to be on a first come, and we'd have to pay attention to class size and, and uh, grade level and, and, and those pieces. But we have to be responsible around that area to say that we would have to come up with a process for that buffer zone request. And then um, it's, it doesn't preclude the idea of that if there was a master facilities plan, and if the timeline somehow, the results of a master plan um, resulting, and I'll get to that in the report at the end, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't preclude someone from being subject to uh, a move if the master facilities plan determined that there was a, a move in the future. Um, what you'll notice in the report, the timing of that will take, would take time, and it would probably be longer than we have students currently that are in the middle school in this particular scenario that we're discussing, but I just would put it out there for consideration. So uh, finally, we had the input opportunities. In March, we held input sessions in person and virtually for families. We uh, hold, held them virtually for staff after school, and then we had the form that many of you filled out um, and submitted, and we were able to gather that data and collect it and put it into um, put it in this report, and we're going to share that now. I think, Mr. Charles, at this point, you wanted to share some of the survey data that was collected? Yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah, so as, as Mr. Gear had said, we had our four forums where we had, um, for our families, our educators, we also sent out the survey to get some feedback regarding the three options that were proposed at the table. Uh, the survey was open from March 7th to 17th, so about 10 days. Um, where we received responses for, from 114 respondents. Um, these ranged from uh, families, educators, uh, but primar primarily families. When we looked at the breakdown, the breakdown was in line with the areas that would be impacted the most. Um, so it was Keller was the, the largest uh, respondents, um, followed by Oak, and then the other elementary schools, um, very similar to the, the level of impact, uh, which what definitely was not surprising. Um, we'd expect those that were closer to it would be paying more, more attention and uh, wanting to share their input. Um, the main themes that we've seen are, one thing we had also asked was, which of the three options would they prefer? And during that, um, we saw 50% had chose option one, um, followed by option three, which was at 38% roughly, and then 12% for option two. Um, when looking into the, the, the feedback and, and the verbatims around why individuals chose what they chose, it ranged from things such as not being moved again as part of the day of their closure, 
the available space at the Kennedy Sullivan, which was something that had come up during our conversations, and, and the potential to use space more flexibly than it currently is. And then also, um, last but not least, is really around impacts to children that are on IEP. Um, so just, there was a perception that the IEP that was established would be interrupted as a result of any potential movement. Um, and then, and, and actually one more. And then the last but not least was really the, the thought that a future master facilities plan would end up moving these children um, once again. Um, so I believe at the time we weren't clear on what the time frame for a master plan to be started through implementation. Um, and not just, just sort of the planning phase, but the actual moving of students to a final destination uh, as a result of that master facilities plan. So uh, that's kind of what, what uh, we gleaned based out of that uh, survey. Um, so with all of that, we distilled all of the feedback that we received. We talked as a committee um, to really get to a recommendation for all of you. Um, this wasn't an easy decision. Um, there was a lot of moving parts, a lot of things to factor in. Um, and it's, it's not a decision that you just make lightly um, at a whim and, and not really look at all factors. Um, we had scheduled a meeting for the 20th of March to really talk through this and come with our perspectives. Um, at that time, we were not able to come to a place of uh, consensus to even vote on the recommendation, so we did extend that to another, another session. Um, and what we came down to as our recommendation was not even one of the um, options as it, as is. We had to look at modifications and it, things factored in such as time frame. How long would this take to implement? Um, what would make sense that would make it as most equitable as possible uh, for those that are impacted? Um, and then also factoring in um, just really what, what's realistically happening um, and then thinking of you know, others that are coming into the situation. So what we implemented was, as I'll just read it here, um, we would be implementing option three in fall of 2023, um, which would be the buffer zone, followed by transitioning to option two in fall of 2024. Um, the thought process around this would be Option three would allow families in designated former Davis there components um, that could go to Oak, um, could request to move prior to option two. So giving the element of choice for those that want to move, um, and that was their expectation. Uh, we also looked at knowing that we, if we do option two in 2024, um, keeping in mind for those that are coming into kindergarten. Um, so instead of having them move in 2024 after being in a year in one school, giving them that choice as well to go to the final school destination um, in advance. Um, as Mr. Jagir had mentioned, if folks had opted to, to option two, they would not get the transportation um, in 2023 as it is an optional move. However, in 2024, when the changes did go into effect, they would go into, uh, they would be able to get public uh, school transportation. Um, once, um, for those that were making the request in 2023, as Mr. Jagir had said as well, it would be a first come, first serve basis uh, based off the capacity and uh, approval. 
the the one of the things that we had to factor in was around the Davis Air their closure, and we we did not extend a blanket um, consideration to all to to not move uh, in option two, and the reason why was that there is an existing policy today that allows families to request to go to a different school, um, so they would be allowed to follow that same policy, which is JCA, assignment of students to schools, to request if they if they were going to be moving from Keller to another school as a result of option two, they could request that, um, or even uh, middle school to an option two. They could request that, but it would just be dependent on supervisor approval. Um, the other things is just to be mindful of this. Um, as I mentioned before, one of the things that we saw in the survey was around IEPs and 504s. Um, the concern that, that those would be um, not transferred to the student. Um, by law, the district would move those IEPs and 504s along with those students as well. Um, so that you know, any any agreements that were made for those particular students would carry over. They would get those services, uh, regardless of whichever school that they go to. Um, while we did not explicitly call out the master facilities plan as part of option two, um, by going to option two does not prevent the master facilities plan from happening. I feel like that is something that is required to be done, um, as we need to do a, a full. Um, assessment of our, our schools. It's just that it's not something that would happen in the short term, which I think folks were, were expecting. I think from a planning standpoint, um, we're looking at about 18 months and an implementation is even more, um, which Mr. Jagir will talk to a little bit, a little bit further. We, we went with this phased approach as well, uh, just in consideration of, of how we could implement this. Um, so that we were doing a little bit of both, of taking action um, and allowing some movement to happen, while at the same time not forcing the movement to happen uh, right away, and, and, and being cognizant of that, because there are more things that need to be done um, logistically, other than just saying, these are your new schools. Um, we have to look at it a little bit larger, and it allows the teachers, the district, to really take that time to be cognizant of what needs to be done and actually implement the changes um, before it happens. Um, and, and looking at it, if we do move forward with this, it would be about 15 months worth of planning to make sure that all the items that need to be addressed are addressed as best as we possibly can um, before uh, 2024 begins. Uh, but lastly, just one thing just to say, it's. Redistricting is, is never, there's never a good time for it. Um, regardless of who you are, there's somebody that's gonna be in their last grade in fifth grade, there's gonna be somebody in there um, going into, you know, eighth grade. It's, it's, there's, it's, it really, there is not a good time. And if we don't do it now, it's, it's all that we're doing is just going to be impacting different children. Um, because I think we all do know that Redistricting is something that has to happen eventually. It just comes down to when and how. Thank you. Just to clarify one piece of this, the I want to be clear because ultimately, if you're making a decision on this, you need to be informed and understand a few of these pieces. The option to the policy JCA that Mr. Charles referenced, I just want to be very clear. 
We've used that in the policy states in the, around hardship. So what I would say is that is not, the, the goal here is to decide whether it makes sense to do a redistricting as uh, recommended, but ultimately the district areas that you decide that either stay or change, right? Um, the policy is applied in, in situations that are very specific. So I just want to be clear to you all, like if you, I, I would hate to have you um, not understand that and think that with option two, if you voted for that or something. I'm not trying to spin this. You have to make your own decision. I'm going to provide information and try to really help shepherd this along. But I would just want to be clear for you and for all families, like you set the boundaries. Um, we use that policy. We don't just apply it. At, it's a policy. And it's meant for hardship cases where we would expect that, you know, we have a situation that I've been made aware of where I've met with the family, discussed it. It's, it's not as frequent as it may appear like a waiver or like an ad drop in school. If it, I'm trying to use an analogy because it's not the same, but it's not as easy as just submitting a piece of paper that would say, I'd like to just go to, because then it's, what's the point of doing all this? If, that's, if it's that easy to do. I just think you have to really have that in mind as a voting member around if you decide to change boundaries, they're really meant to serve as a structure because otherwise we're just gonna have an influx of um, requests all, you know, to go to any school in any capacity. So I just wanna say that so that you kind of understand policy JCA and how we apply it and it's meant for um, those types of situations that have come up. Does that make sense? Okay, that's what I think. So, piece of information, we're going to shift to now. So, we talked a little bit about the surveys. You saw, right, 50% option one, 38% option two, uh, 12, I forget. I'm sorry, 12 to option two and 38 option three? Yep. yep. We now are moving into the next piece of information in the report, which I'm going to have Mrs. Goodman speak to, was around the question was okay, if we had this buffer zone idea, you know, and this existed, how do we know, you know who would want this opportunity and who would take it? So I'll let Miriam speak to the process that um, we undertook and the work that she did. Sure, thank you. So um, we took, uh, we put together two surveys. Uh, one was to incoming kindergarten families who lived in those particular components that are outlined in the report. I'll call them expanded buffer zones for the purpose of this. Um, the second was to families who are currently at Keller who were previously at Davis Thayer and are scheduled to, to redistrict if option two were chosen. The, um, relative to the kindergarten survey, it was set to 46 kindergarten families um, who are living in those zones. We received a 58.6% response rate, which was 27 respondents. Of those 27 respondents, 10 of them chose to go to a different school, the redistricting school, instead of the assigned school. The second survey uh, was sent to 56 families who were identified, as I said, as former Davis Thayer um, families. And we received a 46.5% uh, response rate, which is a, um, similarly 26 responses, and of those, two chose uh, to go from the Keller School to the Oak Street School. Um, if, if all of those moves, hypothetically, if all of those moves were to take place next year, 
Um, I've provided you with some current class size data and some projected class size data and what that would look like. <coughs> the, um, relative to the financial impacts uh, of these options, option one really doesn't have uh, a financial impact. It, it assumes the status quo. Uh, the, the, master facilities plan would need uh, to be identified in terms of the final cost. We anticipate it to exceed um, $30,000. So we would put out an RFP and we would have a, um, uh, some proposals received uh, and we would find out the, the total cost at that point in time. Option two, uh, the, fi the financial impact for option two primarily focuses on transportation. Um, as you know, 19% of the students in option two, 19% uh, of students in grades K through eight would be redistricted in op option two. That's 561 students, and of those 561 students, there are 332 that are currently riding buses. So when you look at those 332 students, their breakdown, um, some 63 who are currently not charged a fee will remain not being charged a fee if they went to the redistricted school. Um, 121 students who are currently not being charged a fee would be required to pay a fee at that point. They would be in a paid-to-ride status. Um, of the 142 that are currently in the paid-to-ride status, they would remain in a paid-to-ride status and um, six of them in a paid-to-ride status would change to having no fee assessed for transportation. Uh, the net uh, of all of that equates to a potential revenue um, gain of $27,720 if option two were to be implemented. Uh, so that is a possible revenue generation. <clears throat> Uh, and I've also provided uh, some additional data specific to um, Keller and Oak and those with, with the two of the largest um, schools being impacted. Uh, in terms of option three, could have some impact based on the buffer zone survey. Um, the surveys were not binding at that time. The parents were informed of that. Uh, in the end, if that is the choice that is made and the parent is offered the opportunity uh, it would, we would see where that falls at that point in time. Um, really not uh, anticipating a, a significant financial impact, although there could be uh, some shift in, uh, in a, a need for an additional, additional classroom section uh, if every kindergartner, let's say, hypothetically chose that. We don't, we don't know that at this point. It's something that we would keep an eye on as um, and when we changed. Uh, additionally, again, as I said, the master facilities plan cost would be uh, something that we would have to take on as well with option three, and we again anticipate that to um, exceed $30,000. Uh, and just to um, give you some information, we did uh, look at projects in town. We updated the, the listing of anticipated projects that are going on in town. Uh, there's a link provided for that list. Um, the demographer that we've used in the past has indicated on multiple occasions that turnover of single-family homes is the largest driver of school enrollment uh, and that apartment complexes are not a significant driver of enrollment. And so, so when you look through that list and you see those apartment complexes, 
that are being built in various areas of town, they're not a significant driver of enrollment. The largest driver is the turnover of single-family homes in the district. Thank you. So um, the final segment of the report talked about long-range plan, master uh, facilities master plan and the recommendations. So you may recall we've referenced in the past, uh, 2020, Kessel Booz was the company that was used to provide some recommendations. They conducted an assessment report that basically looked at and assess the, the schools in general. Um, you can reference that report, it was linked. I know that we've um, talked about it before. And it basically, if you go to page 53, it talks about um, basically that the school district, um, it's recommended that uh, any long-term solution should be evaluated as part of a master school facilities plan based on the scope of the report. They talk about the solutions that, uh, that they offer and what could be offered, but. It, at the end of the report, basically, uh, what I decided was, why don't I go back and have that conversation? So Mrs. Goodman and I met with um, our facilities director, Mike D'Angelo, and then we also met with the person who was the author of the report that was providing the recommendations. You may recall the report at the end, at the end had about probably eight recommendations of different scenarios that could take place. Everything from um, closing Davis Thayer to uh, one of the examples had one middle school that was consolidated um, on at the Hall span and then had um, each of the elementaries at the complexes. It had one had a recommendation to um, build an additional complex and combine their two independent schools. There was a lot of scenarios that played out, but it was very clear that more information was needed. And that's the whole idea when we did the forums and we talked to families was just around really making sure that we understood the process and kind of what would be needed and what would be entailed. So this goes on to talk about um, a plan, basically builds off of a report. We have the report. We would build off of, of that report, look at um, all of our schools, what's in need of repair, renovation, what's the age of the existing, what's the footprint, the, the, do the schools, you know, if we uh, were able to go through, what recommendations would we have for the future of Franklin? And that's a long-term vision. Um, the work that we conducted this year was looking at one eye on what's what's feasible next year while also trying to keep an eye on the long term. And those have a little bit of a different goal, just in, inherent, just like your own planning for your life, right? You try to think about what am I trying to get done next year? What am I really trying to get done in the next five years or 10 years? Uh, through the analysis, it, it talked about just visioning space, um, talked about capital improvements and kind of how are we keeping up with the repairs that are needed. So there's a cost analysis to running a building, um, whether it's brand new or newer, like Franklin High School, versus an older school that we may have in the, in the district. And what's the cost to maintain those and repair those? Because ultimately, buildings are also, and schools are investments in your community. And I think that's something that I would just point out. And then ultimately, um, you work through that process to outline what are the mechanical functionings of each of the things, what's the, the plumbing inspection, all those pieces, and come up with a recommendation to school committee on what, what can happen. And you'll notice here, based on the conversations that we had with um, Kessel Booz and Associates, with the facilities director, we laid out uh, basically a plan of what this looks like. So building off of the report and doing a real comprehensive study, continuing to look at enrollment, and ultimately come up with a plan within 12 to 18 months for recommendation for a, a big picture. And then we uh, built in, based on their recommendation, 
is really you need to then identify your strategy for repair, procurement, approval, uh, funding. All of those pieces are part of that first year to year, two year process of really trying to get your ducks lined up and have that information. And then ultimately, uh, depending on the direction, but in any of those examples, if it was to anything involving building a new school, according to the, um, the architect and our facilities director, is a multi-year process. You've probably seen this in other districts. We experienced this when we built Franklin High. The day you submit the request, it takes time. It takes years to get approved. It takes years to get in the queue to be built. And I think I would just point to in the report from the 2020 report that I listed, it does talk about having a 10-year kind of vision. Um, it's not to say it will take 10, but I know that I don't want to sit here tonight and quote um, a timeline that I'm not sure I can I have the control over. So what's in my control is to provide the information that was provided, provided to me from the consultants that we've used in the past and our facilities director and try to lay out for everyone and for you all to understand what does Matt, when we say um, master, uh, I'm sorry, facilities master planning, what do we mean? And uh, there's more context to read in the report, but that's basically a, a summary. And you'll notice uh, in, the bot, in the last column, it talks about acceptance into the core program, if that's an option. The feasibility and study takes time and construction and site development. All those pieces, if you're thinking about uh, a pathway that leads to um, kind of moving in the direction of 2029, 20, 2030, 2031, around any type of facilities changes, uh, it's, it's a longer process. That's the report. That's the information. Um, regarding this, and at this point, I would open it up to any questions that you may have regarding this or comments. All right, thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, we're gonna start mix things up. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, all right, well, totally surprised. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, let me mention, so the IEPs, uh, right, those, those are not in practice. Now, I guess just to clarify a couple things. So, so op, option three, um, so everything's the same, and any involvement changes in that would be completely optional. Is that my understanding of that? The option three had the buffer zones, and those were um, only uh, by request. But yes. if it's if it's part of the policy, it's not the JCA. It's you deciding that if you live in this buffer zone, you could put the request in, and then we can work through it. Does that make sense? So yes, you're yeah. correct. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Let me try to understand that. Mm -hmm. um, now, and, and the recommendation was start with three, go into two, potentially. That, that's your recommendation. That is correct. Right. Yeah.
Um, we'll see the settlement. So as a member of the subcommittee, I voted against bringing the recommendation to the full committee because I think this option is short-sighted. We need more time to gather more information with a wider, more creative lens. Before making any immediate decisions, we need to do the work of completing a school master facilities plan so we can better understand the health and lifespans of our buildings, decide where we're going to go long-term, and then outline action steps which will likely include redistricting to get us there. I don't think we can make any decisions now without considering the big picture. Can we keep going? Sure. Okay. I've been part of this process all along and I still don't understand why we are being pressured to rush this decision. Besides some perceptions of tight space at Keller, there seems to be no real urgency to push this forward. No compelling evidence to necessitate this happening right now. Why would we uproot such a large percentage of families when we can focus on Keller-specific problem solving? We can absolutely decide to wait to make any sweeping decisions until after a school master's facility plan is completed and we have a long-term plan to navigate. I can go all night. You know. Nope, you don't. I, oh, well there's, okay, there's one other. I guess, go ahead. So in addition to, in the report, it mentioned that there were 34 emails addressed to the redistricting analysis um, email address. Also, the full school committee, which most of you know probably, except our spam filters are very um, active and tricky, so maybe some went to spam, but we received about, I'm sort of estimating, about 34 emails from community members to the entire school committee um, about no, sorry, 34 redistricting, about two dozen to the full school committee. Some were signed by groups of um, community members and families, and one included a petition, in case you didn't see it, one included a petition of 223 family uh, Franco parents urging us to vote no on option two. So heads up on that, it might be in your spam. Okay. Thank you. Um, first of all, I just have to say thank you all for the work that you did as well as all members of the Space Seed Subcommittee. Uh, this is certainly not an easy task, and I know this is part many hours of hard work and consideration, so thank you all for the, the time and effort that you put into this. It's greatly appreciated. I do have a few questions. Um, if we implement um, option three for this coming school year, what are any complications of implementation that we anticipate might occur, whether they be related to transportation, administrative, or otherwise, in terms of implementing this buffer zone concept? So in terms of um, option three, relative to transportation, those are options. Mm -hmm. And because once you choose that option, you are, in essence, waving your white right to be transported at that point in time, because if you stay at your assigned school, you would have an option for transportation. Um, so choosing to go to a different school uh, would would relinquish that obligation for um, for that one year. Okay. And uh, any any other anything else we can say on, on the admin side or on, on the ground of the schools or any, anything else we can say? Just with option three, I think we would just uh, we. As we went through this process, the reason option three became um, a, a viable option that we were discussing was around 
Um, we talked, I talked with Dr. Rogers around the management. Dr. Rogers oversees residency um, in her role as well. But we talked about the process we would need to undertake to, to um, create this option and then manage it and make sure that it was clear and that it was fair um, around requesting. So um, there's, that's not necessarily an obstacle, it's just it would be an expectation of option three that we have a pretty clear process for how that would look for folks who chose to do that. The only other piece I'd say is if you commit to, if you request to do that, we, for our purposes of forecasting and future enrollment, is it's we wouldn't want to have um, someone request that, commit to that, and then we would expect that you attend that school for the remainder of the time there for uh, the purposes of our planning and, and projecting. That's how we would set it up from our perspective. Um, so you couldn't say, I, I want to go to the school this year and then maybe you know, go to the school the next year. Um, unless there was a, obviously we do have policy for extreme circumstances, but we would want to create systems that allow uh, a buffer zone to be a viable option and then allow for that. In that example, just strictly without um, the recommendation that came from space needs around option two, option three I'm speaking to directly. So, okay, thank, thank you very much. Um, in terms of the master facilities plan, so thank you for detailing um, what information we included in that, in that second to last um, second to second to last slide. So can you just provide some clarity um, of all this information? What what do we know now? What don't we know now? What would be the, the value add of the master's facilities plan in terms of what, um, you know, like once it's completed compared to what the information that we have right now? So the work that we did now around enrollment, looking at um, our zones, our components, I think is valuable as we start to look at this plan from a geographic standpoint. The piece around the mass facilities assessment that was done talked about how it did not include our use of specialized program, our use of space for specialized programs. So the work that we did this year looked at that as well. Um, it, what I would suggest in my my plan, as we if we were to continue, which most options, I'm just going to go off on we are planning to do that, would be to include the enrollment demographic study, the analysis that has already occurred, and look at our current school buildings. I think there's a facilities, and thinking about the brick and mortar of the schools we have in the town, and looking at their um, their their life expectancy. And what's what's expected, and where are they at? What is the cost? There needs to be a real, true analysis of the mechanical parts of a building. What the cost is to continue to maintain repairs, roof um, repairs, replacements are quite expensive. For example, and you want to be really just like in your own home, and you want to be thinking about if a building is aged, is it is it um, responsible to? put a lot of money into, it's just like that car idea, like at some point you have to really decide what you want to do. So I do see um, value in what we've done, but also recognize that there's more work that needs to be done. Um, so the value is that we would arrive with a recommendation that basically says we've, we've explored the recommendations from that original report. We've maybe included other options that existed. Here's the recommendation to move forward with our facilities and our schools, and as Ms. Stokes said, that could result in a future redistricting because as I said at the beginning, typically when you either build a school, close a school is the time to, to look at that as part of the options. So, is that me? Yeah. Oops. Are you trying to? I was trying to put up the meeting up. Sorry. 
continue to be thoughtful in the plan, but um, the plans that I've seen, and you can go, and, and I've talked to other colleagues from other districts, the plan um, includes a lot of metric data on schools, and it's very objective around the analysis. So that's an example of that adaptive and technical. Looking at a building for a building is really a technical assessment. The adaptive piece is around any change associated with us. So there's work to be done. I, I see a need for us to do that work. And I think we need, you know, as projected in that timeline, we need the time to do that right and include our facilities department in that discussion. You know, and I think a consultant, the work you do up front, every uh, superintendent that I've spoken to, spoke to, the work you do up front around this, if there's a recommendation and decision to build a school, to close schools and uh, build a, uh, another complex, or some of the examples that they give in that report, Having that really thorough analysis up front with consultancy and having it lined up really clearly sets you up for when you do apply down the road. And that could be, you know, in 2020, 2030, you could end up with uh, a school built, for example, if that was appropriate and, and made sense as a result. I don't want to get ahead of the recommendation, uh, but ultimately, yeah, that's that's what I would suggest, and we would want to start that work next year. Okay. So just to, for my own clarification, from understanding, so the um, it's like the, the building lifespan uh, of our different facilities and their their usefulness over the next few years is kind of our, our biggest known unknown. So assessing this five this five things and they're in the, yeah. I put them up for everyone to see. Assessing the current conditions, mm -hmm. then you got to look at your educational spaces and vision. What do you want for the district in the next? 10 years with regard to educational space and how it's utilized. Then look at uh, any moves or anything that would exist if they were shuffling or moving, what do you need to do to other facilities and look at. Um, number three talks about other systems that exist within a school. And then ultimately look at solutions with cost estimates and uh, really put together a package that kind of lays out what this would look like and why. And it has to align with an educational vision for what we want for our students in each of our schools with the space we have. And you have to be thinking, a recommendation should be thinking about what do we need within the next 10 years, but does it allow us to have space for future years beyond that? Because buildings last a pretty long time. Okay. Thank you. And um, one last question, and uh, no. I think my colleague Ms. Stokes is all turned out of this is valuable and appreciated. And two, concern that my colleague raised, what is the immediate need that we would be addressing by implementing this recommendation now without a master facilities plan uh, first being done? So I'll just, I'll let others speak, but what I will say is we can, we put forth options that we can implement, mm -hmm. meaning that if there was a decision that had a buffer zone option and it was we can accommodate that in the space we have. We would continue to use Annie Sullivan and Helen Keller flexibly. Um, and Mr. Callahan saw today um, through the through the walk we did and the tours that we did how we're utilizing space. Um, all of the students that are in classrooms at Keller would remain on the Keller side for their classrooms. So there is just to be really clear, we can accommodate that. 
Option two, um, as described, provides the opportunity to create a more leveled, uh, more balance, but there are still continue to be issues at the middle level when you look at some of that balance enrollment. Um, I'm not sure, I think the pressure, um, I can't answer the pressure um, comment, but what I can say is we've put forth uh, those three options, put them out to the community, we received the survey data, we presented the information that you have. A recommendation came out of space needs um, around option three and then option two, but ultimately um, as a district, we, um, we are prepared for uh, any vote that comes, comes our way. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, also thanks for, for uh, all the work that went into the report. Fantastic, there was so much data and information there. Uh, and to the more than 50 people that participated in, in the committee and, and all that came out in the public and, and all the, the emails that we got to, thank you so much uh, uh, for, for all the work that led into this. So, uh, let's see. Kind of going towards the end here, I need even more time to ask, uh, think of other questions. So uh, I'll, I'll start off, um, to kind of prepare for this, I started, I went back uh, through some of the, we have uh, some of the audio recordings from the Davis Thayer facility assessment. Uh, a big thank you to Franklin Matters for organizing all of that information, having it so readily available uh, too. So one of the things what I heard, well, this is from a, it was a, a January 14th, 2021 uh, subcommittee meeting. So just a little over two years ago. And when uh, the decision was being made to, to close DT and to kind of merge uh, the two schools together, Dr. Hearn, had, uh, former superintendent, uh, had stated that the new facility would have the capacity to hold the Davis Thayer students. She did know that it would result in, in, in overutilization, as we're seeing right now, but that through, you know, kind of by utilizing the complex uh, and kind of by, you know, with creative spaces, that there'd be a combined utilization of 80%. As in, you know, so the kind of the merging of the two schools wouldn't produce a problem. So I'm kind of curious, like, what, what happened between then and now, where we may have to you know, shuffle around 19%, which um, after you had mentioned 19% um, is, is a high percentage to kind of achieve this. So kind of what happened in those two years that resulted in where we are today? I'll let you speak to option two if you want, but I will just say that as you saw today, we the classrooms are on the Keller side. Um, the shared space that they use flexibly involves some of the um, math specialist rooms, the literacy specialist rooms. So are there uh, Keller rooms assigned on the Andy Sullivan side? Yes. But um, the majority of the school is, is continues to be on the Keller side. So I don't th I think what Dr. Hearn said was true and we've been able to, to do that. Is that, the, is that the question on that? Does that answer that part? I'm just trying to understand. I think basically it, it seemed like uh, the way that, that I was hearing it mm -hmm. was that, you know, in January 2021, this wasn't an issue. In, you know, April 2023, it is an issue. So what happened between those two years that made it go from, 
you know, closing of DT and the merger would be A-OK -okay to the closing of the merger, and the merger is a problem and requires 19% of the students being redistricted, if, that, if that's what we go with. Kind of like, like what happened between those, those two points? Um, I can only speak to the folks that have are, I think the feedback received from people who are in favor or the, the, the percentage that voted to want this might perceive Keller to be uh, over capacity, movement, movement around, um, to, to navigate this story. Um, I can't speak to, um, the decision to, to recommend an option two, is that the question? Is that what you're basically asking? What changed? I would just say that they pre-closure pre and moving um, to say that we would move kids in. I'm assuming that maybe the, the thought was around um, looking at our space and our numbers and should we have a, an elementary school over 100%? Is, probably, is it feasible? Does it work in that complex? I think that's why the options that went forth in the, in the forum talked about having an option like one, which was just leverage and utilize the complex spaces the way they are, and had option three that said if folks wanted to move because they live geographically. But um, I would say at the time of the closure, the plan and the commitment that Dr. Herr made is still true with, with keeping the kids and having everyone at Keller be able to be educated there. I don't, uh, the recommendation that came from the Space Needs Committee in June talked about wanting to conduct a redistricting analysis to kind of understand and look at, is this sustainable, is this where we want to be, and then what is the impact? And I think tonight we're, we're really talking about there are impacts to families that already moved once in that second option, and I think that's what you're getting at. Um, did you want to speak to the option two and were you? Yeah, so we can read your question in terms of option two. Yeah, just kind of um, almost like if it was if, if having the students and kind of having the numbers uh, when we when we merge the schools in January of, of 2021 was okay, uh, you know why would it not be okay now? You know, kind of like like where's the big catalyst? I think is is kind of maybe where. Definitely, and I, I guess I guess from my perspective. I don't. I don't think it was okay personally. Um, I, I don't think we did not do, or the due diligence was not done to do the redistricting and do that analysis. And had we done a redistricting study at that point as well, if we had the time to do so, we would be in the same space that we are today. And all that we've done is we've just moved it from 2021 to now at this point. Thank you very much. Um, and so, uh, and just another question too, because uh, when looking at diving back uh, uh, further in time, and started looking at some of the enrollment numbers, and so uh, I saw in the fall of 22, and just kind of for transparency, I pulled October uh, for, for a whole bunch of years. Uh, fall of 2022, Kelly had opened with uh, 529 students. Kind of 10 years before that, so in the fall of 2012, it actually had nine more students. It had 538. So, and really kind of just out of you know, ignorance, I kind of have to ask, uh, what, what was happening back then? You know, was it 
was there some of these kind of same inequities that were happening? Did we have you know modules or kind of temporary classrooms uh, that were going on? Basically, if you know if if Keller in the fall of 2022 was you know kind of like busting at the seams and it had you know, nine students less than it did 10 years ago, what was happening 10 years ago? Was this still a problem? Were there other solutions? I think we had. When we think about space and how we use it today, I think the in-district programs that we offer um, are classrooms that may not have been in Keller at that time. I was I was in that complex back then. I don't remember what existed, but I do remember, um, you know, having similar numbers to the ones that you referenced, obviously um, there. So I think how we've used space. I think the reason we um, have some of our offices and whatnot on the Carroll side is to preserve the classroom space, uh, on the Sullivan side, excuse me, is to preserve the classroom spaces on the Keller side. So I would imagine that the use of how we utilize rooms within um, Keller from, from, from then um, would take some offline as classrooms which can probably account for space being used differently as opposed to straight classrooms. Thank you. Uh, that yep. makes a lot of sense. Uh, we got a couple more. You want to keep rolling? Sure. Uh, so it can actually that come, leads to a couple uh, other uh, things that popped up. One of them, um, we were uh, doing the tour this morning. Uh, uh, they were talking about the uh, the, the bico lease that's currently happening in the Andy Sullivan Keller uh, School. Would you be able to? Provide a uh, sure kind of so uh, Bicon Collaborative um, leases space. Collaboratives lease space in schools um, in general. Um, but but Bicon Collaborative has two classrooms currently that they lease at Annie Sullivan um, in the Annie Sullivan Middle School. They've been there for I would say close to 20 years. At least 15 since I've been here. At least at, yeah, and I think since I've been here, they've been here as well. So I would say at least it's going on 20. Um, and they've leased it, and they have the lease agreement. And I think it's an annual um, agreement, and we usually um, set that up and commit. Um, what what we try to do is you, there's a deadline for when you need to have that agreement in place. It's in place for the next school year because they need to be planning forward. I think that's a winter uh, agreement, correct? January. January, thank you. So yes, yeah, so they're in there, and it's on an annual basis. And so um, I think kind of to, to my colleague, uh, Ms. Stokes' point about kind of solving issues directly, like at the school, would that be something of not renewing the lease, opening up two classrooms? I know this is on the Andy Sullivan side, but if we were to not renew the lease uh, next year, open up two rooms that can then be filled with you know, 25 students or other you, you just to be clear you don't need the the only rooms at Keller at Eddie Sullivan now are math um, literacy specialist rooms currently um, so you don't need additional classroom spaces at Eddie Sullivan at this time just to I just want to be clear when we look at our enrollment you don't what we're utilizing for classroom spaces I would want to emphasize this tonight for all of you just to know um, and Mr. Stark was at the redistricting advisory committee, that, the last one we had, and we have walked it recently. We've confirmed this, Mrs. Goodman and I. You have classrooms at Keller and all the students. There was a time during the process where we were trying to confirm that information. Do all the students that have a classroom teacher 
fit at Keller. Do you remember that that was part of the redistricting we had, and we were able to go back. That was why this, you know, this transparent kind of publicized process. When you start throwing out ideas early on, you start to come back to what took, what didn't. Um, we followed up with that, and we would be able to accommodate the students at and at Keller. And okay, so Michael's an annual lease. If we needed to not have it, it's a it's a way to um, rent space that we've had available in the timeline that we've both been here. Um, it's an annual contract. If we needed space to accommodate our students, our students in Franklin are the priority. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, we haven't um, needed to do that at any school. Had that maybe kind of been looked at? So maybe not uh, the classrooms. You know, not not 50 students, but just. Uh, again, to kind of ease some of the issues that are happening happening over at Keller, had that been uh, taken into consideration to say, you know, you know, we, we won't, you know, in order to to try to, you know, uh, stave off mm -hmm. redistricting 19% of our kiddos, you know, we won't renew uh, the lease with the FICO uh, and then start to kind of, you know, just get more creative and mm -hmm. better utilize what's better because they're doing a fantastic job yeah. uh, over there, but just to more creatively utilize uh, even more of the space of that entire complex. And kind of get back to, you know, former superintendent uh, Dr. Hearn's, you know, comments to say that combined, you know, it would be sure. that 80%. Is that something that had been talked about? So the principles, we've talked, they're in agreement to use space, space flexibly. We had, we didn't need, we did, we did, I did think about that. And Miriam and I talked about that when we were thinking about space and did we need it. Um, at this point, we didn't feel like we needed it to use for space. And the other piece is the conversations that occurred at Keller talking with the principal and the conversations with teams of teachers, they wanted to stay together and they wanted to be um, together uh, on, on the Keller side, uh, ultimately, is, is my understanding. So I think keeping um, that core of the classroom teachers together was more important than shifting to Amy Sullivan at that point. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and then uh, also too, when we were doing the some of the school visits today, mm -hmm. um, when we were over at Oak, uh, you know, principals was talking about you know what a, the space that they have, mm -hmm. and also really you know like excited to kind of take on any new new role or responsibility or whatever it is and, and, and challenge and, and kind of kudos it was, it was you know great great challenge them. Um, one of the things we, we kind of we were talking about was what about taking um, you know, one of our specialized programs that's currently in existence in Keller and putting it, say, over into Oak. Um, and then kind of, again, kind of just continuing to kind of open up more space within the Keller community. Is that something that had been, been discussed, uh, talked, in terms of feasibility? I'll let, you could speak to what would, the, what would that mean, but I'll just speak to as part of this process, as we discussed it, the decisions that led to us saying, if you leave it option one or you move to the buffer zone idea or option three, we can commit to accommodating students the way we either have been doing or providing an option for folks who choose to want to go to another district. In that, we're saying that the students who currently attend Keller, we will have classrooms for them. The 105% utilization keeps the math specialists or literacy specialists on the other side. They continue to explore spaces and look for 
but I would I know that there are different perceptions out there and, and if you live there and work there you might have a different perception than someone who walks through during um, a flexible block or a parent who's dropping off in the pickup line we all bring to the table our own perspectives on this so I, I acknowledge that but I think what I'm hearing and what was put forth for the community to provide feedback on was basically here is the numbers with option one here are where we've committed to saying that students could remain in classrooms in option one. We have a buffer zone option, and we have option two, which, which looks at um, redistricting and resetting, um, and then with the idea of you know that recommendation. That was a recommendation that came out of space needs, but I would say to all of you, you have a decision to make as a committee on the final vote there. That's up to you to decide, but we can accommodate we have in that building now we if we needed if we if the option to do option two was a vote we would have to use that year to plan and look at how that would be adjusted and move forward um, so did we look at that yes I think we've looked at how we utilize space but the example of Bico we didn't see a need to cancel their lease as a source of uh, keeping them here and, and having them here because we didn't need the space because of how those decisions were made around trying to just keep the keep the school intact. Yeah, thanks. Anything to add on that, Mrs. Moran? No, and I think you know one of the things we did mention when we went through this whole exercise with all these things is not um, making a huge impact on our students in specialized programs because it's such a big transition. Also, remembering that you know our Keller students in Lunch Drive program then feed into Annie Sullivan. Um, we also, because of the needs of the Keller uh, students in Strive, we also uh, just purchased some really um, phenomenal playground equipment to make recess a little more inclusive. So there's lots of factors that you have to consider. And they've been part of that community for a very long time. And it really is a disruption when you uproot a program, especially one that's been established in the building for a long time. Thank you very much. Um, all right, so I think one last thing, um, really kind of your fault, putting me towards the end. Uh, um, <laughs> so, um, you know, we had uh, at our last meeting, there were the, uh, uh, the two gentlemen were kind of presenting the, the Grand Canyon uh, field trip. And, and they kind of made the crack in it to say that, you know, we studied the tapes, and so here's the Portrait of the Graduate. And they tossed on the slide of Portrait of the Graduate, and they said, here's, you know, how this field trip relates to the Portrait of the Graduate. You're voting on that tonight, actually. Yes, we are. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, you know, and I, I, you know, I love, uh, you know, how they approached it, but I also, they're right, you know, uh, we go gaga anytime they kind of talk about you know the portion of graduate because uh, you know it's a predetermined outcome. Uh, so any any change that we make, any you know if we add a curriculum and change personnel, anything at all, uh, it's it's always with the in the mindset of at the end of the day, the kindergartner that you you know you dropped off at school and you had a hard day, uh, you know watching him go into the school, you know kind of you know. So many years later, when they're you know kind of going across the stage, this is kind of the expected outcome. This is what they're they're going to look like, and this is what they're you know how they're going to be. And so I think kind of to, to my colleague's point, uh, when we look at you know it's 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 so vital to kind of have 
that long-term plan anytime, you know, as we make uh, changes. Because we want to be able to make sure that each change uh, that we're making is kind of continually to guiding us to whatever that, that outcome might be. You know, I know um, uh, Superintendent Jagiri kind of talked about that, uh, you know, some of the stuff that came out of the Castle Booze. I remember when I first heard about it, it was, it was kind of this exciting concept. I haven't dug into it. I'm not giving an endorsement. But, uh, you know, I love the idea of having it was like three big elementary schools one middle school, kind of the, the Horace Mann Oak kind of combined, and then one high school, one high school, we're not building any more high schools. Um, but to kind of have that kind of idea, and to say, you know, in 2030, this is where we would like to be. And so every decision that we make is continually kind of putting us in, and pushing us and pulling us into that direction. And I think, uh, you know, I, um, Colleague, uh, you know, Mr. Charles, you, know, you kind of say, you know, whether or not we do this decision today or if we do it tomorrow, it's just a, impacting a different set of, of kiddos. And absolutely, um, but I, I, I also though I feel that it is kind of so important to make sure that whenever we are making any kind of those big changes and we are impacting 19, we say 19 percent, um, but uh, you know, I just came from my son's uh, baseball team. And, you know, they would probably be on this team, you know, like, what, like three kids that would be part of the 19%, but the other seven would also be impacted. You know, this is a redistricting of, of really any caliber. This impacts everyone, not just those that, that move. And so I do think it's difficult to kind of make some of these choices when we're not 100% sure about where it's going to be in, in 2030, exactly where it's going to be pulling it. And that's kind of where, where I'm at right now. Um, so that's that's all I get. Thank you so much for, for your time. I, I truly appreciate everything and uh, you know for, for AppGeo, uh, you know what came out was a fantastic product which I'm very proud of. Uh, and again for the 50 you know, plus members that worked on this uh, you know for, for many many months. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate all the time uh, you all have to this. First, I'd like to say to my colleagues, I think I was the reason why Denise switched because I told her I have 28 questions. <laughs> oh. So it would have been fair if I went for um, Some of them have been answered. And I do want you to know that the number of my questions, it just reflects, one, my need to understand, and two, my, my, um, uh, my process in such a, an important issue. So it is not because I have issues with, or I didn't sign up for the subcommittee because I wouldn't understand a lot of it. So, um, but I have spent quite a bit of time and some of the questions actually were answered um, as my colleagues spoke. Um, but I did want to just um, repeat something that uh, Dave Callahan said. Um, Well, I don't, I don't want to attach your name to it because I don't want it to sound like I don't want it to sound like I'm putting words in your mouth. Um, I just wanted to to set, and this is the people who most of the people who made those decisions aren't even here. So this is not anybody on trial because you know the defendants aren't around. <laughs> but um, it 
seems in retrospect, but for many people who are going through the process, that the Davis-Thayer closure was too fast. And that even in the report, it says um, that redistricting wasn't done then and it probably should have been done then. Um, and it was done in the middle of the pandemic. So that's, um, I, I don't know, there's just lots of question marks around that. Um, and I know that the Davis-Thayer parents went through uh, and were so meticulous and careful and well-spoken and brought up a lot of issues and even anticipated some of these issues. Um, and I said, I think at the last meeting that people often, uh, that human beings have a really difficult time doing long-range planning, whether it is saving money, and we know from statistics about Americans how little they save, um, whether it is um, uh, thinking about future changes or being even able to imagine them. Um, so it seems that the DT closing was, and it seemed to, I, I, it's mysterious to me why it was closed still, even though I've dug through some of those um, uh, records, but it was predicated on the flexible use of Annie Sullivan. So that was the promise. And now, this this committee came out of um, decisions, or, or sorry, the redistricting came out of the the necessary need to look at space needs, and then this um, these options that were considered and the one put forward are to solve another immediate need, um, and so I I I share the concern about um, I I share the concern about trying to solve immediate needs without continuing. I think that's what I got from what you were saying, is that um, we need to, there are some things we can't know, but we still need to, to make sure that we're not just keep pivoting like this. But I also understand um, the complex ways that you have to assess the facilities and then um, I'm just trying to figure out which of my questions to ask first. So I think I'm gonna just go to the, the end, the very last page. Um, is it okay to put it up there? Because I don't, I don't oh, think sorry. our viewers at home have this, correct? They, they will. Um, I know they, they will, yes. but they don't. Yeah. So if they could see that last page with the chart. Oh, this, this right here? Yeah. Okay. So even some of these um, decisions are predicated on that that we would be accepted into the Massachusetts Building Authority program. And am I right in hearing that 56 schools applied and only 11 got it? Is that correct? Is that, I heard a statistic that it's not a lot. On an annual basis? Yes. Um, they, they accept, you have to put it forth and then it can take years to get to get approved. To get approved or right. accepted is the, is the word. Right. So, the program. so, um, but it's based on your report, your needs, and then I think my understanding from the conversations with facilities is they take into account each community's situation, mm -hmm. and I think they put together a list that prioritizes the worst case scenarios, and that's sure. how they build it. So that's sure, kind of like how a building absolutely leaking and falling apart, and kids, it's dangerous to be would, in. Would be, would be a yeah. So that's that's just to add. And 
also for, for people at home to understand that the MSBA, please correct me if I'm wrong, they also pay 40% of the, the building cost, right? Or there's a percentage of the building cost that they accept. It varies, right. it varies based on the community, but okay. yes, there is a percentage that MSBA would pay. But it also requires for the community to pay for that school. That's correct. Right. And my concern is given um, difficulties with our budget already, is this a community that's willing to pay for new schools anyway? So all of these make this really difficult. Um, but I think it's important for people to understand because I think that um, as people were learning this process, they, I think they assumed that, oh, we just need to do this facilities plan, then we could do the redistricting. But, but as you stated, there may be information that comes out that we don't even know, and then we have to respond to those things. Right. Um, and so I, I guess I want to get back to, even if it's not answered, but to reiterate that if if DT was closing was predicated on, it's fine, we can use Annie Sullivan. Yet the decision now is that's the one that's the problem, we need to fix the problem. How can we just focus on fixing the problem by flexibly using the space? And why wasn't that done in the last two years? I guess I'm asking in a less um, polite way. Like, why wasn't that, why wasn't the space used? Correctly. Or space, space has been used flexibly at Keller. But then why is it a problem now that we have to redistrict because of Keller? That's what I don't... The, the, the charge from... The charge was to conduct an analysis and do this analysis. Sure. Look at it. Um, I think this idea of a longer range plan, as you mentioned, can be a long time before you look at a redistricting again. The idea of what do we do in the meantime and does it make sense, that's the question in front of you. And I think Mr. Charles had spoken about option two and mm -hmm. really talked about doing some of the redistricting as described creates balance now. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, when thinking about it in a long-term plan, there needs to be a longer range thought around what's our pathway. I think people can get behind a pathway. You mentioned long-range planning and the statistics. But I think if people have a long-range plan, you can get behind a long-range plan if the facts are there and the details are there. And that's what I'm interested to engage in and continue. But in front of you today was the result of an analysis and pulling that information together. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, here's all the information, which included a recommendation sure. from the um, Space Needs Subcommittee. And we talked about how that wasn't um, unanimous. But ultimately, there was a dis discussion around if we were to do a balance now, and you're not expecting to do this again for seven to 10 years, the students who would be in the schools today in elementary, in, in this projection, in this timeline as presented, wouldn't be in elementary school today, so. Um, but were the option, were option one, were the, were the option one, I'm, I'm trying to get my grammar correct. Were the suggested option not to pass, and let's say option one happened where no kids moved, could Keller and Annie Sullivan be used even more creatively so that it alleviates that problem? Y yes, and right back to the story map, Annie Sullivan and Helen Keller principals would agree to use space flexibly as appropriate. The community 
express some people, I won't say, because in, in any survey and anything, you're talking about a group. It's not like every single person who lives here weighed in. And, but people who did voice concern did talk about preserving classrooms so that kids go to their fifth grade teacher or their fourth grade and it's on the Keller side. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was trying to say earlier was around, that came out through the, the forums. You know, I facilitated every forum. I've walked the school um, multiple times, met with um, a variety of stakeholders in this as many of you have, but um, the sentiment that I received and walked away from was if things stayed in option one or in option three, preserving that as a, as a school and then having some of the other folks who work for Keller uh, be on the Annie Sullivan side and Mrs. Morrison and Annie Sullivan are more than welcoming to, to accommodate that in that way. Option two did provide a balanced approach. Mm -hmm. And remember, there's adaptive and technical pieces to all of these things. And that option two does have impacts on current families that already moved once, and, um, but it is an option. And then I'll let you speak to the, yeah. how you arrive. And I mean, for option two, what I, from my perspective, it's getting ahead of the, where I think where you're leading with, with, if we do not get the funding for a new school and now we are in a space that we have to do something, we're not at that crunch time of the 2027 year when our enrollment is increasing and now we have more students at that time that do have to move. Mm -hmm. um, this, is, this is getting ahead of kind of worst case scenario, because this option two is not the, the end all be all. Mm -hmm. I think this is a, a move that will allow us to be in a better space if we do not get any new facilities, we do not have any upgrades to our facilities in terms of increasing capacity size, it gives us a, it gives, it puts us in a safe space. I appreciate that. I, I guess uh, part of my long range plan, whether or not I'm even here, is if we were to ask the town to support in whoever knows how many years to support new building, the trust in the decisions that we've made before then, including DT and including now, really affect whether that would pass. And even if your kids aren't in the buildings anymore, you might be like, well, back 10 years ago, I'm not gonna vote for that because they made my kid move. And I, from the beginning, said there may, no, not everyone can get what they want, but the transparency and our dedication to doing the best we can, and even saying, all right, we went through this process and we said, this part is problematic and maybe we just focus on being creative in a smaller section rather than a redistricting. So that's what kind of what I wanted to set out before I ask some questions. Um, so is it okay or do you want people to go through again? Okay. I appreciate your um, patience in my saying that. <laughs> in saying that. Okay. Um, Sorry, I'm scrolling all the way up from this 21-page document. All right, that one's checked off. I got that one. Um, so on page four, it says in, right above timeline and history, uh, redistricting is a tool that Franklin Public Schools will use to evaluate the distribution of students, blah, 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 for the foreseeable future. Is there an actual time forecasted out for that foreseeable, the word foreseeable? I don't know what timeline that means. So the foreseeable future was back to what we, actually, it's still up. 
thinking about there's flexibility and there's yeah, um, there's not there's um, variability mm -hmm. in any other um, decision to any the only uh, the only scenario where I would see another redistricting would have to be connected to obviously if you if the age of a building mm -hmm. and, or there was a, a vote to close a school or build sure. a school or whatever that would be obviously you have to redistrict kids who you've moved so that's what foreseeable future was a way to kind of put that out um, without committing to like a, a hard fast date and year okay which I know people want but it's just not it wouldn't be um, it'd be disingenuous to provide more detail than we know sure um, page five I'm just clarifying the district uh, right before the members the list of the members it says um, the demographic makeup and the district's enrollment trends I'm assuming because I think it says it later in the product project sorry that presentation um, this these um, district enrollment trends are from the 2019 report done by McKibben. From Jerry McKibben. Yes. Yes. Okay. Good. I just wanted to make sure. Um, uh, are the on page nine right below the three redistricting options um, the multiple scenarios discussed through the process were they. Um, I know the three were presented and then they were put in the story map. Were all the other discussed options like housed somewhere so that people saw them or once they were discarded, were they moved? I can speak to that. We, some of them are in the presentations that are posted in there, but not all because you know, often in this process, what you do is you sort of build a scenario and you look at the numbers and you say, this is just not going to work. There's no mm -hmm. point in us even considering this. So, but it is a, it is a scenario. So you, know, you, you build it, you kind of move these building blocks around, and you look at what the result is going to be. And you know, some of them were just not considered. But several were, and those are in, in, the, in the presentations. OK, um, page 10, um, the first paragraph at the top, it says, there's a consideration for a buffer zone for designated areas of Davis there, attendance boundary, which would allow families to opt in to Oak or Parmenter for specific zones as a special consideration. Does that just mean, like, I don't know what that language means. Like, what is, as a special consideration of what? Considering what? Uh, if the option three mm -hmm. keeps, the, keeps the where you live you attend the school where you live. The buffer zone is basically saying we're, we've created zones that are a special consideration for you to attend a school that's not designated as your okay, area I if just, you fall within those areas. Okay, I just didn't understand yep, the language. No, no, I was like, is there question. some something else? No. <laughs> okay. Um, and then I just want to clarify the buffer zone considerations right below that in option three. The district will not provide transportation. Um, that's just for that first year. But they would, I just, for the audience, I just want to clarify, it doesn't mean that you will never get transportation again, but that if you choose to go to a different school that year until it, am I? Yeah, so okay. per the recommendation, yes. Okay. If it was just option three alone, then no. Okay. Um, I recognize, um, I recognize that my, my next question is the second bullet under that. 
I recognize there's no perfect way to determine who would get to choose opt-in to different schools. I just have um, concerns about more um, affluent parents being able to access the information and be first come, first served. I, I guess I'm just a little concerned about how it can be communicated equitably, that um, people who work three jobs might not have the leisure of attending these meetings, going to these, reading these, and I would just feel uncomfortable with the idea that the kids who have a lot get a lot more again and they get more choice. Um, and then in another place it says it would also be a, a superintendent decision. So I don't understand, are these in conflict? Um, and I, I try to elaborate on that a little. I'll be a little more brief, but I, I understand the question. Um, the first part is we need to figure out a way to do it so it's not like a Taylor Swift concert. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Trying to figure out a way to, to communicate that and be, yeah. be upfront with people on when and how um, that would be included as part of the buffer zone and communicating that. And I understand your point and your concern around making sure that everyone knows and at least has the ability to take part in that if they wish to. Um, I don't think it'll be as popular as a Taylor Swift concert, but I would put that out The second piece is, and I try to clarify this, attendance zones, the, the charge of this committee, it's in your purview to identify the attendance zones, which is why those three options exist. And that's where, you know what, the charge was to come in and do an analysis. Here's the analysis, here's the information, here's the recommendation that came through from from that, from the space needs group, ultimately you have to make a decision on this. I will point out that the JCA policy is really meant in hardship cases. So what I wouldn't want to do is set up a thing where it's like, I don't want, you voted for it yeah. thinking yeah. that everyone who just applies the policy gets right. it, because that's not what that means. No. And I just want you to have that be equipped with that information so that you're clear about, do you want to vote for an option two that has redistricting or not, mm -hmm. because that's really meant for specific cases. And I would be, you know, I was the, it's it's me, it, this would be me ultimately, but as a res, as for residency, even when I was assistant principal, you know, you have to follow that policy. It's not often comfortable. You have to kind of weigh out, you know, the information and try to make the best decision you can with families and try to do that. But I would not consider um, uh, redistricting as a, as a reason, because I think what would happen is it would just undermine the whole vote, because and I can imagine people who are not happy would just come to try to apply a policy. Now, it's not to say we don't look at that on a case-by-case -case basis, sure. ask for documentation, all the things that we do, um, but I just want to be clear about that with more for the community, mm -hmm. but also for you as folks that are voting on this eventually, I just want to be clear about that policy, because I don't want to create you know, problems down the road or disappointment. The, um, I, I appreciate that you said that in the, now I'm confused in the reports, the previous reports that mm -hmm. our special populations and the programs at the schools weren't considered in that few years ago report. Um, but I can see in a buffer zone that somebody, um, or I can see in a redistricting that somebody's child might be in one of those special programs and then it wouldn't work to move to another school. No? Yes? If they're in a specialized program, they're assigned to the school there. They're assigned to the program. Okay, okay. Which 
wherever it exists is where it is. Okay, I just want parents to understand that if you're, were your child to be, re, were the school to be redistricted. Right, good question. Your, and your child is in, say, strive because that's the program that is created for them that they would remain in the STRIVE program in the school where it is housed and they wouldn't just go to a neighborhood school. So that's just a clarification for parents who might be concerned about the special program, these great programs we have, but the reason why they're different at each school is so that you don't have teeny tiny little programs at every single school that for the best use of resources, which might mean classrooms, which goes back to what you were saying, is there were nine more kids 20 years ago, 21 years ago, but we have a higher percentage of special populations and a classroom that could fit 25 kids who sit in the desks in a row is different than kids who might have special equipment or additional staff members that you might have um, a para for every single child. So that's that's why those numbers, why somebody might go, they crammed them all in before, why can't they now? It's because we have programs where those classrooms, um, uh, when, you say, when you see the capacity on the wall, that's for people standing. It's not for a wheelchair or a, a para. It's not so that I think people. I'm just repeating that so people understand that. Um, I I I didn't understand the wording on page 11. It's the paragraph between the two charts. The primary themes that emerged were the desire to avoid another redistricting effort, and I highlighted this part, perceived available space at Annie Sullivan. That's of the respondents, that's not us, because I would assume we wouldn't offer it as an option if there weren't actually space. So yes. repeat that? Um, that middle paragraph yeah. between those, um, the primary themes that emerged from the survey yeah. were perceived available space. What you're saying is, what Lucas said before that you know people walk in at a certain time or they pick up something and they're like it looks great to me or it looks crowded to me that perception is of the respondents it's correct. not us correct yeah. right okay I just want to make that clear that it's not we have a perception that there's available no, space no. we're clear on what space we have and how it can be used okay um, you, I've gotten through a lot of questions um okay on page 12 underneath the bullets SNFA did not extend across the board considerations to families who attended Davis there in 2020 to 2021 to remain in color post option two I don't understand this next sentence this decision was made because it could raise concerns for those outside of former Davis Thayer community who are not now required to move yeah so as part of the Davis there closure, the decision was to keep Davis there together. And the thought was if we say we do option two, however, those that were impacted do not have to move. Anybody that was potentially having to move from Oak Street or, or wherever, I don't, I don't see how we could say just because you were moved because of Davis there, you don't, uh, you don't have to move, but everybody else that now has to move as a result, you don't have that option to, to stay. So it was just more just, it's a blanket giving people access to, to stay. Nobody has access to stay as a blanket decision, if that helps. 
So we weren't just given the blanket option just to state it at your roommate, your previous school as after option two. I, is this where I can ask why, um, I know the discussions were made, but why ultimately the subcommittee decided not to allow Davis Thayer parents whose kids would have to move twice. I'm not talking about kids whose maybe their older sibling already moved, but the, the new kid would come in. Like, I'm not saying no Davis Thayer ever for 20 generations from now on should ever have to move, but the ones who already moved, I know there was a lot of discussion, but why ultimately was it um, not put as an option that Davis Thayer kids wouldn't have to move a second time? And we didn't get to that granularity. And I think that's, that's something that we, I know Elise had brought that up, but we didn't get to the details of exactly how many students were there, and then it add, added some complexity around, okay, well, I have an older sibling that went to Davis there that moved, but now I have a kindergartner that has never gone to Davis there. What, where does that kind of come into play? So it was, I think it was just more around the complexity around that and, and all of the different variables that would come about mm -hmm. as a result. Because okay. um, I mean, we've heard feedback from folks that have said that exact same scenario. Like, what do I do? Do you, do we move one? Do we do both? You know, and, and mm -hmm. how, how would that really work equitably? Yeah. And then ultimately, it comes down to busing at that point. So once we do transition, is now one student taking the bus to their option two school, mm -hmm. and then the other student driven to school mm -hmm. for option? because they, they were impacted as a So you're saying in a same family, yep, exactly. if that were to happen. Let's say you only give the freedom to kids who've already moved, but you say your kindergartner has never moved, mm -hmm. um, so they're gonna have to move. You're saying that this situation would come up that a family might have two yep. buses. Now- Well, not even two buses. They'd have one bus and one drive because the bus is only for the school that's an option two, which is their designated school, not their choice school. Oh, I guess I don't mean even option, I just mean like yep. globally. Before yep. it became an option, um, it, it could create a situation where my kindergartner would take one bus to the school where they were districted, mm -hmm. and my fourth grader or fifth grader would take a different bus um, to the school where they wanted to continue to Oh, Keller, why don't I just make it clear? So one kid might get redistricted to Oak, Oak, yes, and then the other one would continue their trajectory to Keller, and the, is that a financial issue? I know it's confusing and you worry that the kindergartner's gonna get on the wrong bus, but well, is it a financial issue that that, I know it's complex, it but be, complex doesn't always mean bad. It wouldn't be two buses, though, that's the thing. It would be one bus to their designated, so one to Oak, and there would be no bus to Keller. Oh, so. So, from a family standpoint, you'd have to figure out how do you get a kid on a bus and then also drive another kid to school right. at the same time. Right. So it, that's that's kind of where the complexities come from, and yeah. and from a, it, it didn't seem like it would be something that would make sense and be feasible, or we just say both children are going to that same school uh, and staying at Keller, just kind of negating the redistricting process. Okay. Um, 
from the KBA report that okay. was done in 2020. And basically, it was trying, uh, uh, the quotes from the KBA report yeah. coincide with the visual that was next to the quotes. So I was trying to make sure that you had a context to the 10-year quote, which basically, uh, it talks about, it's the final uh, quote of the, of the report. The 10-year need section, KBA states, any long-term solution should be evaluated as part of, the, part of the master facilities plan. So they put together, if, you, if that had occurred, implement the immediate needs, which they listed in the recommendations. One happened to be the closure of Davis Thayer. But then it said by 2025, implementing a long-range plan and then moving through. That was based on a report that was written two years prior. Right. What are the percentage? Like, what's 67% and what's 85%? Then why does it go down to 75? I don't know what those are. Um, I think if you look at their projections, I have to go back to the report okay. with the percentages. Okay. I'm assuming those are um, linked to some sort of capacity percentage, okay. in the way I would imagine, but I don't. I can't confirm that right now. Okay. Um, yes. Um, on page 20, this is more for the audience, um, and, and it's kind of going back to what I opened with, the plan, the facilities master plan that can take 12 to 18 months, and then we see like that fallout from that can take seven to 10 years, and even number five, the final recommendation of the school committee, whatever, not even us, it might not be us, voted, doesn't even mean that the school, like anything, any of those plans would be built because it requires funding, it requires getting approved for the, the, right. the Massachusetts Building Association, whatever it is. And the purpose of that plan is mm -hmm. to truly assess your facilities. And what yeah. I know is um, you bring up a lot of great points about 
context mm -hmm. and funding and all of the things that we talk about. What I would say is it doesn't, that, that would not negate the need for us to assess our schools and look at our facilities sure. and create a recommendation. The 12 month, I mean uh, the final recommendation is to school committee after this is conducted and analyzed yes. and then it's like, hey, school committee members, yeah. purview of the school, right? Yeah. This is the recommendation from this work yes. and it's a long-term plan. And then ultimately there are other folks that are involved in that. You have to, it talks about um, including conversations with the town. How does this yes. coincide with that? The community, the yeah. facilities department. So I'm glad that you brought that up because the recommendation is just like, here's what we found. But I will say, if we're identifying needs and we've identified a pathway for Franklin Public Schools that makes the most sense to set us up for success moving forward, that's in line with our educational vision and creates opportunities for our facilities to provide what students need, then we're the people in this room right now. Mm -hmm. And in 10 years, if it's a different group of people, they're gonna have the same mission. So we should still continue to do that work and then um, navigate funding, navigate strategy and navigate what we need to communicate to be clear about what we're trying to accomplish here. And yes. I agree with you, the longer, and it's sticking with me when you said the long range planning is something that's, because there's so many variables on a path to get to there, but I do think um, if we can provide that and really try to vision what we want for Franklin Public Schools, it's just gonna serve us all. Um, uh, so. Oh, and I definitely am not saying that based on current budget troubles that, that I'm, I'm But it's a reality, saying, it's a reality. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying, oh my gosh, let's not even do this master's facility plan because clearly nobody, I'm not saying that at all. I didn't think you were. Just, the two factors are, given our history, given our present situation, um, it's not as easy as saying, oh, we need to do this, mm -hmm. and then it happens. Right. And then also, uh, my other point, um, which was belabored, but it's important that making thoughtful decisions, and even if it, even if, as long as they're transparent, and even if it takes a long time to figure out what that is, that builds trust with the community so that they they say, oh, they went through an arduous and long process, but we can trust that they're saying we need a new school, we need a new school. Okay, um, okay I think I only have one more. Nope, that's it. All done. All right, we're gonna go back, just make sure everybody had a chance. Oh, I thought we were just going. One no, I just want to make sure nobody else came up. There was some things that I was. Oh, I'm sorry. Ready down. Um, I forgot. So, um, okay. So there's, you know, I was the the chair of the DT subcommittee, and so and Denise sat on the committee at that time. Um, and so I would say if there are questions about that, you know, I'm happy to have conversations. All, like as Dave Callahan said, all the information is on Franklin Matters, but also there's still a Davis Fair Facilities Analysis webpage that has all the, our reports, our documents are all public. We have, you know, lists of pros and cons, and um, there's, there's a lot of information there. Um, I know there were a lot of emotions during that time, um, not just by the community members, but by 
committee members, subcommittee members, and full committee members, and um, it was a, a complicated process. Um, I do just want to comment um, that Al, you had said something about there wasn't due diligence to redistricting at that time, but redistricting was never on the table during the DT closing because we were assured, as both of you mentioned, we were assured um, that there is ample room in the complex. We were assured, you know, verbally by the district, the, the numbers all lined up as far as like, okay, well, Keller's going to be a little over, but Selden's way under, so if you they're all in the same building under the same roof, you know, sharing other spaces. So of course it makes sense. 80% capacity, that's awesome, we're winning, that's a score. Like it was never, um, it was never even on our radar that we, well, as you had said, some parents had predicted it and we were like, no, but look at the numbers and they promise us that it's not going to be that way. And so I think, um, as you said, and more eloquently than me, our decision was predicated, right, on that, the belief and the understanding and the trust that those spaces would be used flexibly enough so that like, they would feel that overcrowding. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't realize until we started going through this process and we got a couple emails from Keller staff sort of like um, describing the day in the life of, of what overcrowding feels like and I didn't know and felt um, frustrated by that, by hearing that. So, um, it also sounds like if we go to the first page of the report, oh wait, maybe not the first page, one of the first pages of the report where it's basically like the why. I think that's the question we get, I hear a lot, is why. And that's the question I ask, and I can't answer. I have somebody asked me today, so why, why redistrict now? And I can't answer it. And so I think there are these bullets, one, two, three, four bullets on this page, or four. Um, and like really none of them speak in an urgent way to me. And I think like through our conversations tonight, it sounds like Keller. Like why Keller? Like Keller's the answer to the why. But as we were sort of like fleshing out a number of us up here is like, why are we uprooting so many different families without a long-term vision? We're not sort of headed in a, in a direction in a thoughtful way. So why are we even doing this to solve a problem if we're saying it's a Keller problem? Why don't we just look at Keller? Like, can't we just look at Keller? Can't we like look at the parking and look at the playgrounds and look at the small group instruction spaces and all those things that we sort of heard about here and there as far as like the perception of where it feels overcrowded. Because when we were talking about, um, Camille, you had asked about like the other options that were on the table for the redistricting analysis. The advisory committee, like where did they go? Did they just sort of disappear? And I felt like some of them just disappeared. Um, there was an idea of, you know, Keller fifth grade moving over to the Sullivan space, they're going there anyway for sixth grade. Um, could that work? But then, um, like that was never really fully flushed out. And then it sounds like the classroom spaces aren't the problem necessarily. And so then going back to the emails, it sounds like more small group instruction and other, their other sort of um, places where it feels, it feels overcrowded. So I think that that definitely needs some more um, attention and we need more information around that or the district needs more information around like how to, how to make that feel a little bit more doable. Um, at Keller, but I don't think that it's um, enough to necessitate uprooting all these families at this point. Um, and that's what I'm going to say now. For the rest of the night. 
Oh, no, 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 you said it. She said it. Nope, rest of the night. Christina's right now for the record. Nope, she said it. Give it is. Uh, no, I really appreciate the robust discussion this evening. And, uh, and um, any other questions or concerns I have, we'll address. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, what do we got? All right, 13 minutes before you try to get on this. I literally said I was going to count it down a minute until I left my own day's talking. <laughs> um, wait, I got a, uh, uh, a question about, uh, you mentioned like, like the 19% is kind of high. In your experience, what's average? Uh, it, is there an average? I know that's a little bit, I know that's a lot. But kind of when you say it's high, what's that kind of in reference to? Where, where's the reference point of that? Did I say high? I <laughs> know. Um, I, I, I really, I, I don't think I can answer it because it all depends on on the school. But um, I mean, that's a significant number. I mean, I, it depends on what the school's capacity of. You know what I mean? Like you know. Uh, capacity for that kind of change is to some extent, right? Is there a need and is that, you know, uh, something that you want to do? Um, it, it's across the board. I mean, the districts that we worked with, it all depends on the context. Holyoke, we need to completely redistrict that entire town. So, you know, everybody was moved, right? So it's, it's a whole different scenario. Some others had serious um, capacity issues, so we had to, you know, do a lot of movement so that it was bound to happen. So, um, yeah, yeah, I just, you know, I think it, it totally depends. And it, it, it depends on what your comfort level is for, you know, moving that many students. Okay. Thank you. I, I really, I, I truly appreciate that. Thank you. Um, to my colleague's point, um, when it comes to the, the DT facility uh, and else, when, come across like an armchair quarterback, that's not my intent, really just kind of went to to kind of study and, and say, you know, well, where's, you know, what was happening then, what is happening now, there's, there's a through line, obviously, and, uh, but, if you kind of talk about, well, that, that 80% kind of combined, um, you know, you know, basically, kind of like that big, big question of, of that, that why, like, where's almost like, you know, uh, Almost like if you have to take a look at like a, like a cost benefit analysis, you know, there's a significant cost to redistricting 19% of our students. And kind of, you know, beyond just, you know, there's the, the revenue costs or, you know, in terms of the busing, but, you know, just, um, you know, Superintendent Gear, you kind of talked about that, you know, that, that kind of qualitative cost as well. And when comparing, you know, that up against like the, the benefit of, redistricting of kind of you know getting that utilization I guess I'm just kind of missing that right now uh, you know not to say that it's not not there at all but just you know you look when we kind of making some some decisions but you know I would hope I whenever looking to make a decision I'm always looking for you know try to, at the end of the day get a net positive and because uh, yeah, in the you know in the report talk about like redistricting it's, it's never a good thing um, and uh, you know we had um, my colleague and I, uh, you know, spoke to a lot of community members. We had a listening session, and, and that was one of the things that kind of kept popping up. Was you know, a lot of individuals were stating like they understood why a school might need to redistrict, 
And you know, it is, you know, it's it's there in that in the utility belt. It's not the most comfortable thing. It's not the best thing, but it is there and it does have a reason. Um, but we want to make sure that the reason for it, the benefit for it, is outweighing the cost. And I'm, I'm just myself not quite seeing that just yet. Um, so that's kind of no question at, at this moment. I want to make sure I'm not at 10 o'clock for round three. Nine more minutes of time. Oh, I do. I'm just going to delay it. Uh, Camille? I don't have any more questions. Okay. Um, Can I do one? Sure. So, so the, the question I have is like, has a survey been conducted for option three? Like, what families would be willing to participate? Yes. So, so there's a, in the report on page, uh, it's the page 14. It talks about the survey for the families that would be in that buffer zone. And then they did provide the data. Mrs. Goodman spoke to it earlier. But ultimately, um, and she went through the data. If you want more information, I can reference it, or it's, it's on page 14. Gotcha, okay. Um, all right, that, that's the only yeah, question. Thank you Tuesday, May 30th. I'll keep reminding you, don't you worry. 
Then the superintendent evaluation subcommittee will meet on June 1st to review the information contained in each of the seven individual evaluation forms, calculate consensus for each area, record narrative feedback, and draft up a report that reflects the consensus of all perspectives. At the June 13th school committee meeting, we'll discuss and vote to approve the final report. So I have all those timelines in um, a document that I'll send you as follows. Thank you. Budget. This uh, budget hasn't, hasn't met since our last meeting, however, we are still planning on presenting on the May 10th uh, FinCon meeting, and we'll likely schedule another subcommittee meeting before that time, so stay tuned for that. Policy, Dave Callahan. Uh, next meeting will be on May 16th at 6 o'clock. Uh, anything's kind of coming down the pipeline at this moment. Uh, we did a lot of uh, level setting and taking a look at uh, a lot of the recommendations that were being made by the um, MASC and their policies, and I think kind of almost like cross-referencing that with uh, how long some of our policies have kind of gone without a review, mm -hmm. and so we'll kind of just building almost like a roadmap. Uh, so uh, probably anticipate at the after the 16th, then we'll start to kind of see more policy kind of coming back back up for review. Okay. So. Perfect. Uh, yeah, no meeting scheduled as right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, joint PCC. Uh, our next meeting is on May 15th. All right. Uh, so um, the SWAC Farmers Market appearance will likely shift to June 16th so that community relations can have the spotlight on June 9th. Um, <laughs> so stay tuned about that. And our next meeting is Tuesday, May 2nd. CPAC. CPAC is hosting a workshop focused on executive function strategies coming up tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Um, also on May 11th, there's a workshop on the Massachusetts anti-bullying law. Okay. Perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, Mental health and well-being task force. Our next meeting is May 9th. However, as was shared by our high school student, our critical conversation event um, titled Perspectives on Student Well-Being will be tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. at the High School Auditorium. There's also a Zoom link that's been shared um, where it'll be a webinar format. It's also going to be broadcasted by Franklin TV Live. Um, and then the recording will be posted to our YouTube page. So um, we're very excited for the event. We're ready to go. And um, we hope it'll be a very informative night for our families and community members. Um, and DEI Committee. DEI committee's next meeting is May 17th. Perfect. All right, consent agenda, Mr. Chikir. I recommend approval of the minutes from your April 11th, 2023 school committee meeting as detailed. I recommend approval of the budget transfers as detailed. I recommend approval of the request of Brad Hendrickson for second graders to travel to Providence, Rhode Island to Roger Williams Zoo on May 26, 2023 as detailed. I recommend acceptance of the check for $4,154 from music parents for in-house enrichment as detailed. And I recommend acceptance of a check for $14,609.95 from the Jefferson PCC for field trips as detailed. Okay. Is there a motion to approve the consent agenda as detailed? So moved. Is there a second? Sorry. All right, discussion, questions? All right, seeing none, but we'll come with a motion. All those in favor, signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Carried. What's next? All right, citizens' comments. Are there any citizens in the audience, in person or online, 
who would like to make a comment on an item not on tonight's agenda and falls within the committee's purview. Oops. Mr. Sherlock, um, I just have to read my little blurb if you do not mind. In the spirit of open communication, the committee will hold a public participation segment about matters not related to an agenda item within the school committee's purview. Committees are limited to three minutes, I'm sorry, comments are limited to three minutes and must be addressed to the committee. Citizens' comment segments are not debates or Q&A sessions. It is intended to offer citizens an opportunity to express their opinions on issues of school committee business within the school committee purview. The committee will listen to but not respond to any comment made. If you could state your name and address and please keep within three minutes. Two quick PSAs, Steve Sherlock, 10 Lawrence Drive, Community Information Director for Franklin Matters and Franklin uh, Public Radio. Uh, Saturday, April 29th, noon to three, read your favorite poem at the library or come to hear people read their favorite poem at the library. Second one, May 6th, Kobe Frangillo and I will be hosting a walk around Franklin, approximately three miles, starting with the common, ending back at the common, talking, zoning, topics, history, a variety of things, having a good conversation and a walk at the same time, May 6th. Thank you. Time being 10 o'clock. Yeah, what time is the walk? Time being 10 o'clock. I need a motion to continue the meeting. Motion to continue. Is there a second? Second. All right. All in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? All right. Go ahead, Steve. What time is the walk? Sorry, 10.30 a.m. We anticipate finishing by noon. There is also another uh, labyrinth walk, a uh, similar time period, but they start after, so you should be able to do both. Um, and the other piece of info is certainly commencement for Dean. Uh, it begins at 11, but we'll be walking around, so not interfering with their celebration. Gotcha. Thank you. I see a hand raised online. Gretchen McCauley? We're going to give you um, the ability to unmute, and if you could state your name and address and keep within the three minutes. Oh, she took her hand out. She might have to just unmute. Okay. Um, okay. All right, Mr. Jagir, new business. Okay, so our next meeting, May 9th, we have a continuation of the redistricting process mm -hmm. on the analysis and vote. We also have um, school committee, I mean, I'm sorry, district improvement presentations for objectives one and two to share out. And uh, there's some other routine business around um, board appointments and whatnot that we'll, uh, you can expect to see on the agenda. Okay. All right, so next we will be entering into executive session and will not be returning to open meeting. Pursuant to Mass General Law, Chapter 30A, Section 21A3, to discuss strategy with respect to collective bargaining with the ESPLPN unit as an open meeting may have a detrimental effect on the bargaining position of the school committee and the chair so declares. Is there a motion to enter into executive discussion and not return to open meeting as discussed? So moved. Is there a second? Vote will come on the motion. All those in favor of saying aye. 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 Opposed? All right. Thank you, everyone. See you again on May 9th. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. 
This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.